Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Into the final moments, Alex Payne trying to keep this side going forward. Haskell takes it on now with just relentless chat largely about himself and there's Tyndall to add the finishing touch of glamour and World Cup winning stories and a slightly sideways nose. That is how you podcast. A dominant display by the good, the bad and the rugby. Oh, rugby's having a tough old time at the moment. Wherever you look, there seem to be some fairly negative headlines in the press. So much so that I've made a little list because last year we had the painful episode of Premiership Club's going out of business. We had concussion lawsuits. We had the World Rugby CEO Claude Atcher sacked for allegations of bullying. We had the World Rugby Vice Chairman Bernard Laporte given a suspended prison sentence amidst allegations of corruption. We had an England team booed here at Twickenham. We had the very painful departure of Eddie Jones. We've got English talent heading overseas now. We've got a grassroots game that is really struggling. And on the pitch, we've had endless red cards, TMO interventions, referees abuse. And as we've seen, a whole load of social media meltdowns. But there is a lot of potential. But there is. Running rugby is back. The World Cup next year is going to be epic. The women's game is going from strength to strength. England is under new management and there is so much potential for reform. You're absolutely bang on. So much so that today we've got the opportunity to sit down with two of the most influential men in the English game right now. The CEOs of Premiership Rugby and RFU respectively, Simon Massey-Taylor and Bill Sweeney. It's another good, bad and rugby state of the game. And I'm delighted to say the boardroom is ready. I think last time you were in there was for the disciplinary hearing, wasn't yeah. it? The coffee is on. It's time for us to go and try the Twickenham biscuits. Come, Come on, on Chief. Come on, Chief. <laughs> Bill and Simon, Happy New Year. Thank you very much indeed for allowing the good, the bad and the rugby into the corridors of power. Um, very nice to be here. And I think it's probably worth setting out that this isn't news night or, dare I say, it, a select committee. But neither <laughs> is it going to be a sort of vicar's tea party. So we'll kind of get into yep. some of the headlines, I think, that have happened over the last 12 months or so. And obviously, hopefully some of the positive stories that you might be able to reveal yep, before too long. What I'd love to start with, though, before, it, it, before we sort of get into the meat of it, is just the, the men behind the titles. What, what it appears like is that when things go wrong for both of you, um, it's back page news and bold headlines. And when they go well, it's quite a small sidebar, about 10 pages in. So to, to start with you, first of all, in the last 12 months, you've obviously had quite a roller coaster, both professionally and personally. Yeah. How are you? Early January 2023. How do you reflect on the last year or yeah, so? Yeah, good. Uh, 22 was a tough year, but it was a, it was a tough year for a lot of people, not just uh, people working in, working in sport. You know, we started off with the emerging from COVID, uh, and uh, even though we were coming out of it, there were still repercussions of that, and that was still ongoing, and challenges around the community game and participation rates, and how do you address that? You had that going on. And then you go pretty quickly from that into uh, a full-blown recession. So here we are sitting in Twickenham. Utilities were 2.5 million a year. They're now 7.2 million a year. So that's a reflection of 
things that everyone's going through. So you had that situation as well. And of course, we had some disappointing results. You've got a change of the head coach and the coaching team, which is always a pretty traumatic uh, time. But yeah, it was, it was a tough year, 22, but we got through it. And we're really positive about what's coming up in 23. Brilliant answer. That's dealing with sort of all of the stuff, I suppose, that, that we'd read about in the papers. But how was it for you personally? Because you, you weren't very well in the summer, prior to the summer. Are you through all of that? I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. How, how do you reflect personally on the last... Um, it was a, um, uh, I normally go to the gym most days and I, I found I was getting increasingly breathless okay. and, um, I had a chat to the, the team doctor. That's what happens when you do fitness. I know. I know. <laughs> Stick to the weights. Of course, you've been doing it wrong. Well, normally, normally I could do it for an hour at least. Right, right. But, um, so I, I was just getting breathless and I was talking to the team doctor and explaining the symptoms. We were talking about the Australian tour, actually. I said, look, if you mind me asking a question, I, you know, something's not quite right here. He said, I'll, I'll leave it with me. I'll come back to you. And uh, he got me into a, um, uh, to see a, a specialist uh, the following morning at nine o'clock. He's a guy who specialises in heart and lungs for Premier League footballers and Premiership rugby players and international rugby players and stuff. So he said, right, we're going to do three or four tests and, and whatever, and we'll finish off on a stress test. And he did two tests. He said, I'm not going to do the stress test. Uh, so that this doesn't look good. Uh, Strained to hospital. And I had massive blood clots, which apparently were linked to having COVID. Not the vaccination, but having COVID itself. Wow. So that was a bit of a shock. But I was in hospital for six days. NHS were brilliant. Absolutely amazing. And uh, I came out and I felt 100% literally the day I got out. So, so from that point of view, absolutely fine. All the other stuff, all the other things that go on in sport, I mean, that's the, that's the difference between working in business and working in sport. You know, if you work in business, when I was working for, in the corporate world, uh, if you have a problem, if you have an issue, then you resolve the issue and move on. In sport, it's emotional. Yeah. You know, people love their teams. You know, we, we feel like sort of custodians of that emotional return to fans and whatever. So that can get quite, can uh, get a bit more severe. Uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting year. High blood pressure, I'm sure, for various <laughs> elements of the job. You've got a young family. You've done a year in the job. How's it all panning out according to what your expectations were coming in? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was pretty close to uh, the premiership just because of my five years here at the RFU previously. So I knew to an extent what I was looking myself in for. And it was, you know, an organisation that had um, been through a really tough couple of years through COVID and various other things. So there was a need to get it back on track. But I mean, I started this time last year, literally, and... You know, I remember that this week was negotiating with French border authorities to try and get teams out to France and try and get them back and not stuck. So we were still in COVID. We were still doing that. The clubs were still borrowing money from the government at this stage through the whole COVID loan piece. So we were still in that type of situation. And I remember saying at the time that it was a you know, miracle that all the clubs had got through COVID. And as it turned out, a couple of them didn't. And so, you know, whilst getting the organisation back on track, these you know, we had the issues with, with two clubs and that just totally wipes out a summer kills holidays and had to ask for quite a bit of forgiveness since. <laughs> <laughs> a few pink tickets being burnt along the way, I'm sure. Right. I, I mean, what I'd love to do is sort of, there's, there's so many things that we'd love to talk to you about. Can you just very quickly start with what is your actual job remit? Because people will see your title and they will expect you to be producing miracles and solving problems that probably don't necessarily fall under the remit. And uh, I'd just be interested to know how you, what is on your to-do list in the role that you've got as CEO of Premiership Rugby? Yeah, so, so I'm responsible for, for the Premiership and the, and the competitions that they compete in. The, the Premiership is owned by um, 11 clubs now, the established Premiership clubs. We have a private equity investor, CVC, who have taken a minority stake in it purely from the commercial side of things. And my responsibility is a twofold. A is to to be the administrator and operate the league, um, and then secondly to to run the commercial side of things. And 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 with that, the big responsibility of growing the sport and growing the league. 
It's a very generic question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What would you give Premiership Rugby out of 10? Relative to where we're trying to get to, <clears throat> how would you mark your league and where you're at? I'd say as far as, far as a, a, a competition, I'd give it close to 10. You know, it's, it's unbelievable when it comes to how competitive our league is. You know, people strive to have... Competition is the main element when, when you're looking at leagues, and, and we've got that. You know, if yeah. you look at the league right now, uh, there's 10 points in between third place, Harlequins, and, and the bottom of the league, Bears, like 10 points. So, so there's this situation where anyone can win at any given weekend. And look at this weekend, you know, with, with, um, with Newcastle taking on, um, putting 40 points against um, Leicester. Leicester, the champions last year. So that's amazing. So we're really blessed with that type of things. And so, you know, I give that a very, very high score. Off um, the field. I give off, off the field clearly relatively new when it comes to professionalism. You know, professionalism only really started um, in the back end of the 90s and it's gone through many different chapters. And I think with that, things have been bolted on and, and, and twisted and turned. And I think it's not necessarily the, the structure you'd ideally have and, and the way that you'd operate. So I think from a, from a governance perspective and all those, all those types of things which are important when you're uh, trying to operate a league and you're trying to attract external investment, I think we've got better at certain things and, and there's a number of things in, in the pipeline, but we've got a lot of way, a long way to go on that thing. So what's the mark? Uh, I'd probably give it a sort of five or six at the moment, yeah. but edging <clears throat> towards you know seven or eight. And that's the thing we really need to get right, especially when you think about you know the long-term future, because we want to make it attractive for, for future investors. So I think we've got the product's great. Um, it's been under-invested, under-marketed, and that's part of my remit. Um, but we also need to get the foundational elements when you came into the job, obviously, you know, you sort of came from the RFU. Did you lift up the rug and go, wow, this, I, I was sort of lulled into what this was going to be? Or, or did you come in and you were aware of the ideas because you're in charge of the premiership, but the clubs own themselves? And I wondered if you sort of, did you get there and go, actually, we're not really in control? Or would we need more control? Or was there a lot of bodies buried? I mean, you know, no, what I mean, was it like? I mean, the, the, the benefit of coming in from the RFU is, is you know how the system works. And so, you know, and the, and the attraction to the role was coming into it and, and being part of the change. And I think... You didn't wonder why they were offering you 10 times more of the salary until you got there and you were like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's not much danger money. But the, but the, uh, the, the, and the real opportunity, and if some of it's come through COVID and people talk about COVID bringing people together. That's definitely the case with the clubs, you know, definitely. And, and they all want to be part of the change and get things on a, on a stable footing. Now, clearly what happened over the summer has just made that made that much more pertinent you know when you when you're in there and you're trying to make decisions you feel like you're able to make decisions or because because from the outside it looks like to me you guys can put something in place and then you ask 11 individual owners who are by nature self-interested successful businessmen who don't really they care what's for, right for the club not necessarily right for the league and then you ask them to do stuff and they just don't want to do it or they or they're difficult or they put up barriers does that make it hard for you to, to, to actually get your stuff done? Yeah, I think historically it has. And so one of the changes that we've recently made is we've established a sporting commission, which essentially is an independent group to make those decisions on behalf of the league. So, because at the moment it's it's the clubs that are making it. And sometimes you need a, a super majority or a unanimous vote to make things happen. And so we tried to simplify that and create some independence and have people that aren't linked to a specific club and, and, and have that independence of thought. So, so we've simplified that and then tried to remove the potential for conflict, which, you know, sometimes has existed. And so we hope that is a, is a big step forward in trying to, to improve our decision-making and moving forward. Let's come back to the Premiership as a whole um, a little bit later on, but it's still almost the same question to you, Bill, in terms of the job spec and then a mark out of 10 for all things. Uh, it's, it's quite a, a broad remit, but maybe before I get on to the broad remit, when I, when I first came here, 
I asked to meet the longest serving employees of the RFU. I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to people who've been here for ages. And there's an amazing uh, woman here called Lisa Pryor who's been here about 40 years. And she said, your job's really simple, actually. She said, well, what you've got to do is you've got to get the best England team you can. Yeah. You've got to fill Twickenham every time you play here, take all that money, invest it into the community game, and then create the next wave of kids that come through and progress through the system and end up playing for England. You repeat the whole cycle. That's actually a very simplistic way of saying it. But in a nutshell, that's basically what it is. Now, around that, you've probably got six or seven different businesses within the RFU as a business. So on the one hand, we're a membership organization. We're a national governing body. So you've got 1,900 clubs in the country, uh, and, um, and they elect their council members that come on. You've got the RFU council that um, uh, has responsibility around the regulatory side of the game, not the commercial side, but the regulatory side of the game. So on the one hand, you're a membership organization. As a national governing body, you're there to protect the game and grow the game. So regulations, laws, participation, how do you encourage all of that? You've got that there. You've got this place itself. So unlike the Southern Hemisphere, we own this stadium. So you've got everything to do with owning a venue of this size, 82,000 people, health and safety, whatever. We're quite a complex commercial operation. If you look at the deal that was done with CVC, if you look at the commercial rights, uh, the negotiation around broadcast rights, the collaboration with Six Nations, it's quite a complex, sophisticated uh, uh, commercial operation as well. You've got the running of a national team, which you know, is right up there in terms of uh, high-performance uh, values, high-performance systems in place, no dissimilar to... Running the, running the Olympics and the British Olympic Association. And you're also a lobbying body. So I sit on the board of British and Irish Lions, European Rugby, World Rugby, a couple of others I've forgotten now. Uh, so you're in there to try and sort of represent the English point of view and also try to get to situations which is best interest of the game. So it is a, quite a broad remit. So no one day is the same. Yeah. It's a complete difference depending on time of year, issue that's being uh, discussed or topics we're dealing with. Mark out of 10? Mark out of 10 on the England team would have to be a five, uh, I'd say, you know, given, given recent performances, but then you know, a, a successful tour in Australia. Uh, but I'd say a five. In terms of what we're doing uh, around the community game and, 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 and protecting that and growing it, I'd give us a seven in terms of things we're doing, but the game's struggling, but it's yeah. not just rugby. And we can come on to that later on in terms of team sport generally and other unions in other countries as well. Um, and I'd give us on. I'd give us the community game. I'd give us a six, but we need to make sure we continue to work to to improve that. I wonder with you, Bill, because you know we, we talked about it off air. It's kind of around some of the things that are going on by not being able to say anything. We really appreciate you guys coming on the pod actually, because a it's good to see that you're both human. You know that you're you know both not hanging upside down a wardrobe, feeding off <laughs> off blood and everything else like that. And you're, you're, you're you know you're actually um, sort of human beings because I think some people especially as you said around sport have emotion and they point fingers and you don't and you guys aren't often able to speak because sometimes your personal view might be different to the to the corporate view but by saying by leaving a, a void people fill it the media fill it with, re with with rhetoric is that is that especially in your job uh, but quite frustrating do you often want to come out and say and, and address things or maybe go with stuff that that is contrary to what maybe good for the business or, or do you or how, how do you deal with that yeah it can be frustrating because uh, again, the comparison between the corporate world and, and the sports world and the rugby world in particular, um, if you make a decision in rugby, the chances are if you please 70% of the people, you're doing really, really yeah. well. If you're only upsetting 30, you're doing really, really well. Chances are you're normally upsetting more than 30 because there are a lot of very different agendas. So there'll be something I'll have in mind in terms of, right, I really think this is the way we need to go. But to actually come out and say that could undermine the ability to get there. Because all of a sudden you create an awful lot of resistance. You'll create, and normally it's the it's the minority negative voice that's the loudest. 
So sometimes when we you get a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes when you come out, you say, right, this is, and it's frustrating because, in, again, making these comparisons to the corporate world, you're under a lot of pressure in the corporate world to say, what's your vision? Where are you taking this company in the next 10 years? What, what direction are you going in? If you don't have a vision, then you, you, you're in trouble. It's harder for some reason to do that in sports sometimes because you've got this wide range of different stakeholders and different agendas that you've got to manage along the process. Collaboration, alignment, you, you probably hear that word more in sport than you do in, in, in business. It is interesting you, you said about, because we, we've talked about it on the pod many times, that I think the only way for rugby to move forward mm-hmm. is, like you said, to have a to have a, a policy and a structure, but to actually inter, to put it into place and okay. not worry that you're going to have negativity. Because I see now everyone tripping over themselves to keep the media happy, to keep certain sections of the fans happy, when actually you're never going to be able to do that and you've got to put your big boy pants on and, and, and deal with that. But, but yeah. that's something you feel like you're, you're, you're able to do, are you? Yeah, I think so. I, I think, and more and more, I think the longer you're in the role, the more you feel you can actually do that, you know which levers to pull and you know how to operate within that. So I think you'll see us going more into that direction. I think shows like this, I'm not just sort of blowing smoke, but the ability to have this interaction, so it's a conversation rather than, than a one-dimensional article, uh, allows you to get your point of view across or allows you to explain things, which frankly, if they're not explained, I can understand why the fans or various other stakeholders would get frustrated themselves, saying, well, what's really, really going on? And that's when you get the situation of people saying, well, one and one equals two here. Mm-hmm. That's what I think the situation is, and it's not necessarily accurate. We were a bit nervous, actually, sorry, just to check that we hadn't had to sign a waiver that if we put anything wrong, we won't get disappeared. Like there's a, <laughs> a couple of men in RFU. Good luck getting rid of you. You'd be in a box six feet under. Shot in the head and thrown in an RFU branded bin out yeah. the back. No, that's, we're all okay. We had to strip that budget <laughs> out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tough times. <clears throat> Can we get into some of the headlines from the last 12 months or so. And I think what we were trying to do is to is to give an opportunity for those that listen. I, I think we're going to hear the word frustration quite a lot over the next hour or so. And I think just looking at the hole in rugby right now, there are so many voices and so many opinions and so many factions trying to get themselves sorted out. Um, it is just a very, very frustrating landscape. But let's, let's sort of throw it forward a little bit later. Can we deal with Eddie, first of all? Um, you know, why the decision? Why nine months out from a World Cup? How difficult yeah. the process? How was the process... Uh, managed. Yeah, the, the honest truth about that is it's an ongoing process. So I think there's a perception that you'll have a tournament and there'll be a review and that's it. But there'll be an ongoing process all the, all the way along. So before every major tournament, we have a preview. So we go through what's the objectives from this particular campaign, what are we hoping to achieve. Uh, Eddie would talk or the head coach would talk about you know, what their plans are, what their strategies are. You go through the tournament afterwards, you have a review process and you assess where you got to with that. And I think with uh, in in that situation, it was uh, it was it was it was difficult. It was tricky. But I think there are some parallels to look at if you go all the way back to 2018. If you remember 2018, in the Six Nations in 2018, we came fifth. Mm. I think we then went into the summer tour in South Africa, build up two good leads in the first two tests, but then lose them, fade, and then we lose those two, and then we win the third one with a bit of magic from Danny Cipriani. So even at that stage, there was quite a lot of pressure on Eddie uh, coming out of that South African tour. You then go into the autumns in 2018. Uh, we beat South Africa first, I think. You had that brilliant game against New Zealand where we lost by one point, mm. but it was the last minute disallowed try from Sam Underhill. Then you beat Japan convincingly and beat Australia convincingly. So there was real momentum there coming into that autumn, heading into a 2019 World Cup, and then second in the Six Nations 19 and that World Cup run in 2019. What felt different this time around was the, it was difficult to really assess the 21 
um, Six Nations campaign because we were still COVID impacted to a certain extent. You had the Saracen situation, the championship. So it was a little bit, it was a little bit murkier to, to get a real sense of that. And then we didn't really have a, a summer campaign because of COVID. So we had the US and Canada came here. You then had the 22 Six Nations, which was disappointing. But there again, strange matches, Charlie Yule's first minute, mm. 14, etc. Crazy game at Murrayfield where 99 times at 100, we'd probably win that game, but disappointing nonetheless. Then you go on tour to, to Australia, you win a tour, which is difficult down there. You know, our win rate in, in Australia, I think it's 17%. And you had with Eddie there two two uh, two series victories. You're welcome. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so you had that. So therefore, you're thinking, right? We're going to kick on, and we want a similar sort of situation in 22 as we had in in, in 2018. It didn't happen, but I think the the differences were that something's just weren't quite clicking. Some things just weren't working the way we thought they were going to work, the way we all thought they were going to work. You know, probably the way Eddie thought they were going to work. And we reached a situation following the review where we felt there's some changes that just have to be made, necessary to be made. Uh, that probably Eddie wasn't able to put into place just because of the tenure in the job. So, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a very uh, thorough process, uh, not an easy decision, but you know, we're absolutely now you know, delighted with how we're set up going into the Six Nations. You know, to get Steve on board and we can talk about Steve and the coaching team maybe mm. separately. What is that process with Eddie, though? I mean, because there's all sort of smoke and mirrors and the sort of secret panels, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Who makes the decision? How do you reach the point where you say to, you know, England's yeah. most successful coach, we're yeah, making yeah. the change? Yeah, and, and difficult because not only England's most successful coach, but but also, uh, along with Steve Hansen, the best win ratio of, of in a World Cup. So, and, and Eddie's a tournament animal. So in the preparation leading up to World Cup, you know, he's got an awful lot of strengths there. So it wasn't easy. It wasn't a simple, straightforward easy decision to make you have to assess all the facts get everything together and make a real balanced judgment in terms of right are we better off making this decision or are we not and we felt it was better off to do that i guess that's where you start to have this image of hanging upside down in a cupboard you know <laughs> feeding off you know these weird strange smoke and mirrors panels the truth on that situation is there's probably three people if i name three people you know who we wanted on the original panel who yeah. said give me the weekend to think about it and i'll come back on monday and if i gave you their names you'd know them really well one would be uh, uh, an ex-England player, and others would be leaders in, in the sports world. And they just said, actually, with the scrutiny now in the media and the social media, and if you look at what happened in 2011 with the report in 2011, actually, I've had a chat over the weekend with my wife and family. I'd love to do it, but no, I can't. And they're not being paid. They come in, and they perform a function, and they assess and analyse, and they do it in the best interest of what they think is right for England rugby and how the head coach is performing. Um, and therefore, the, the ones that were there said, actually, we'll do it, but we'd like anonymity on this. So we said, yeah, now the chances are stuff leaks. But that's the reasons behind that. But it's a very thorough process. Mm. So it's a group decision. And in Eddie's case, uh, a discussion with the board on the Tuesday after the review. My first question to you really in, in that regard is it seems like, I know there's an ongoing process, but it seems like in particular that the press dictated what, what happened? Is there any truth in that? Do you, do you feel pressured by the press to make decisions? No, no, 100% not. In fact, if there was ever going to be any pressure from the media, it would have happened earlier. Right. It would have happened after 21 Six Nations when the conversation might have gone, well, we got to a World Cup final in 2019, but the transition isn't working well enough. 21 Six Nations has been poor, and you've still got a long way out before the World Cup. So to do it after a 22 Six Nations... We fully anticipated there to be a lot of questions around, well, how can you do it so close to a World Cup? Is that the right thing to do? So there was no media pressure on that whatsoever. I listened to the pod you did, uh, which I thought was excellent in terms of balance point of view. You kind of, you were swimming against the tide to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, tell yeah. me about it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but absolutely no media pressure from that perspective whatsoever. Now, 
you sense the fans' frustration. You know, nobody wants to hear booing at Twickenham after after the South African match. But that wouldn't be a decision to change the head. That wouldn't be a reason to make a decision to change the head coach. It, w- it was other factors. Did you consult the players at all? Yeah. Spoke to uh, not every single one. I spoke to a number. Connor spoke to a number. I'm always surprised because I never feel like people are consulted. I never, I never, you know, because yeah. all the players I spoke to were very surprised. And people, and I messaged them going, like, I'd, you know, I wanted to get a sense because I, when we interviewed Ellis, I asked him a question. I was like, listen, mate, am I lost the plot here? Because I know it's clear that I'm an Eddie fan. And so I felt he was very, very good at what, what he did. Now, the players I spoke to were very positive. Some of them were, were very, very disappointed, didn't want him to go. But you, you did do that. And, you, and, yeah, and, what, yeah. and what was the opinion you got? Yeah, we did speak to the players. And if you go back to when, when the pressure was on previously as well, one of the things that was always in Eddie's favour was he clearly kept the dressing room. Yes. You know, the players liked uh, Eddie's capability as a coach and they were very supportive of Eddie. So, uh, and I would say that remained the case. The, co- the conversations I had, again, without naming players, I don't think, think it would be fair and reasonable to do that, was a disappointment for the decision in terms of Eddie going but a real understanding and support for the decision yes. being made. So, oh, right, okay. Yeah, I so think, like, sorry, the decision with, with both has come in because that was, that was one thing. You've taken what you took away with one hand. Yeah, yeah. If you were going to pick anybody to bring in, Steve Borthwick, I think, was the best, the best decision because some yeah. of the names thrown around, I, I was like, well, one of them hasn't got any international experience. It's a massive ask. Other guys I didn't think were good. Both is, you know, is basically has been forged in the crucible of Eddie Jones' yeah. fire in the stuff he did. But you're, but you're saying that they were disappointed that he went, but actually happy that there was a decision yeah. made with someone. They, you know. they were disappointed that, that uh, the ones I spoke to said, look, we're disappointed for Eddie. Yeah. We like Eddie. Yeah. Um, uh, but we understand why the decision was taken. And without again naming players, said we think it's the right decision. Oh, really? Yeah. In, in okay. terms of changing what needed to be changed to go into twenty three in, in a stronger position. Right, okay. And one again, one of them, and again, no names, but said to me, "Look, I was misquoted in the media because what I said was I was disappointed for Eddie, but I wasn't disappointed in the RFU decision. But that was reported as I'm right. disappointed in the decision. Okay. So, so the, the ones I spoke to were, I have to speak to Connor some more as well. But the ones I spoke to got the the overall situation. Can I ask you, and I don't expect you to do numbers, but the financial implications of making a change in his, I, I think I'm right in saying he was the, the best paid coach in world rugby at the time. Um, you mentioned the fact that the bills have gone from two to seven million here. We've got funding crisis across the game. How big a consideration was the money, not only to say farewell, but also to bring in a, a new coaching team? Yeah, well, you, again, in sport, you're always, uh, you're always scenario planning. So a scenario is we're not going to do very well, or we may have to make a change. So you build that into the budgetary process and keep yourself a bit of contingency just in case mm. um so that was that was that would not be the main reason for, for for what we would have thought would be make the wrong decision okay and just in, i don't again expect you to trade trade <coughs> secrets but the, the conversation itself with eddie was it a, a two minute was it a 20 minute have you been in touch since or once the deed is done is it good luck go go forth i, sp- I spoke to him over the weekend leading up to the review just in terms of uh the the, the likely nature of that review because it was a bit more Tense, given, yeah. given that given the there was a lot, there was a lot of it playing out in the media as well. Yeah, yeah, and we were trying to keep that away. Yeah, so we discussed it at, at the weekend. Um, the review was on the Monday. The board meeting was on the Tuesday. I then met him immediately after the board meeting. He was as ever one hundred percent professional. Yeah, no histrionics, whatever. He understands what high performance sports about. It's a tough job. It, you know, massive scrutiny, huge pressure, um, and he was fine. We, we've exchanged a few texts since. Yeah. You know how the script goes from here, don't you? That he will be taking his last <laughs> RFU paycheck two weeks out before the end of the World Cup. He'll be wearing an Australian 
tracksuit, yeah. it'll be the 79th minute, 16 all, and Australia will have a penalty <laughs> 35 metres out. And we'll win it. Oh, you think? Okay, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, comfortable we'll, with that. And we'll win the game. in that scenario? Yeah, no, and we'll win the game. You know, as I've said, you know, he's a, he's a great World Cup coach, but you've got to have confidence in your own system, and we're really delighted that Steve's come in. And if you look at that team that's coming together with Steve, I mean, Steve knows how we operate. Steve knows most of those players that are in there. He was one of the, part of the coaching team in 2019. Yeah. We've conducted a, I mean, you know, he played for England as a schoolboy, under 21, 55 caps, 21 as captain, I think, 265 games in the Premiership. And he's coming with all that experience and overseas international coaching experience. And he's bringing a very strong unit with him, with Kevin Sunfield coming in and retention of Cockers in there. And he's done a great job for us as well. So Nick Evans. Uh, yeah, and and Nick, more to come? Will there be further announcements? Possibly. I mean, it's, uh, that's up to him to finalise exactly what he, he needs to, to go forward. But he's unbelievably authentic. Uh, he, he's incredible in terms of his discipline and how he approaches preparation and, and, and where he wants to go. And we're seeing that already in, 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 in loads. Um, plus, you've got quite an interesting range of personalities around him as well. So you look at the French situation, how often do you see Galtier? After a match, very rarely you see Ibanez. So I think one of the problems perhaps previously was, um, and this wasn't so much us as, uh, as much as the media and us maybe, but the media were only interested in talking to Eddie mm. after a match. Because you know, he was good. I mean, he gave he yeah, yeah, brilliant soundbites. It's not always right, yeah, yeah. but he, great content. he gave great content. But, and so therefore, we'd put other people up, but they'd say, actually, no, what we really want is we want to hear Eddie's latest soundbite. So I think we're in a different situation there in terms of the balance and the mix across the team. And also, Steve is very conscious that he, he's developing that part of his, his personality. What are, his, what are the expectations on Steve? Nine months seven, eight games, whatever it is, yeah. what, what is. What has he got to do? Match by match. This is long-term. This is a long-term rebuild. Uh, we want to re-engage back with the fans. We want this to be England's team. So we're not going to put any undue pressure on him with uh, KPIs and targets around the World Cup or the Six Nations. It'll be let's go match by match. Rugby's a funny game. Sometimes it doesn't work in your favour. Sometimes, you know, we've had a tough weekend this weekend with injuries, but, you know, that, the, everyone's got injuries here. But no, it's match by match. Good luck to him. Um, and well done, actually. Thank you. I mean, some, some really interesting responses to that. I, I, I sense that sometimes it'd be really nice to be able to come out and just say this is how it is, but I completely understand why. Yeah. But, but thank you. Should we move on to the next hot potato? <laughs> I'm going to read to you from the Daily Mail. English Always a dangerous thing oh, no, to be do. Be very that. careful. I'm not quite sure. Oh, what yeah, you left but, the body. Doing there that. were a couple of others we could have gone to as well, but we went with the mail. English rugby bosses were torn limb from limb and accused <laughs> of failure on an epic scale by a Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport hearing on Thursday. DCMS Chair Julian Knight MP, who has actually had his own problems off the back of this, but I don't think we need to dwell on any of those, accused Sweeney of being completely asleep on the job. Knight added to Sweeney, frankly, you failed in this instance and so has the RFU. Should you not be looking at your position? If this happened in the Premier League, the head of the league would resign on the spot. I don't know how you can come to this committee and say what you said with a straight face. It's almost like one of your school reports. <laughs> <laughs> that is a proper spanking. Um, when you walked out of the DCMS committee and you looked at each other, was it a deep breath? Did you, what did you say to each other? Went to the pub. No, right. yeah, yeah. no, I mean, I think it's, I, I, I study politics and I believe in that process. I believe, I, I believe in what the select committee is, is there to do. And I think I probably came out pretty disappointed that we didn't unpick the whole problem. I think they focused on a specific area. And so um, uh, I think coming out of that, I probably felt disappointed that we didn't get the sort of full story of, of what has happened within, within English rugby. Um, yeah, that was my immediate thought coming out of that um, it's like spanking that we both <laughs> Did you consider your position? <clears throat> uh, no. <laughs> you didn't? I, no. Straight back into it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you know, when you go into a select committee, you, you know you're going to get a shoeing, 
mean, that's part of the process for it. Uh, I've been into a few before. I've witnessed a few others before. As, as Simon said, I don't think we really got the opportunity to lay out the, the case, uh, which is frustrating in itself. What we should have said, actually, is this was all within the context of Worcester and Wasps. So with that in mind, how do you reflect on the summer that <clears> was with regards to, to those two proud clubs going out of business? You sort of have to take it back a, bit, uh, a few steps before that. And again, sort of coming in, coming into the role, we were still in COVID. Uh, the clubs were still borrowing money from the government. And if the government hadn't provided their um, recovery fund, then it would be a completely different story. All clubs would have actually probably gone bust halfway through 21. But it was only supposed to be there to, to get through the, the COVID period. After that, the clubs were on their own and had to carry the burden of that debt afterwards. But coming into it and, you know, around March time, it was clear that, that a number of clubs needed to get more financing in order to be able to, to, to meet their bills. Now, WASP had the big one, obviously, with their, with their bond. And that was either going to go one or two ways, given the scale of things. But every indication was that they were ready to refinance with a, with a, with a big bank. Worcester equally had agreed terms and various other things around their financing. And so, so you, you, you saw the roadmap that they were going to get through, but equally it was, it was you know, boom or bust as far as um, that, that financing. Then the economy started going nuts. And, and, and then on top of that, you've got the tax man who takes a very hard line as far as tax bills. And if, as these clubs are coming out of COVID, um, the recovery is slower. People weren't coming back to stadium as quick as quickly as possible, and also they were trying to borrow this money in order to pay the bills. They were, they took a very very hard line, and in both cases, it was the tax man that issued winding up notices that led to the administrations. So you're having to deal with this in real time, and you know you fast forward to you know the summer with Worcester specifically. You're asking yourself the question: you know, are they going to be able to survive, and are they going to be able to compete in the league? Uh, we took the view at the time, along with the government, because remember, they've, they've got um, a large amount of debt there, that we needed to give them as much opportunity as possible to, to get through this. And so we, you know, remember being here um, back September the 5th or whenever we launched the season. And um, and the message was that, that, that they, they're able to pay the bill for that month for the players. But after that, it's uncertain and they need to try and find a solution. And we gave them the time and they didn't find the, um, the solution pre-administration. And then you're into the next chapter. I mean, my reflection on it was, frankly, the helplessness feeling because, you know, there wasn't anything that we could do as a league as far as bailing them out. You know, you're talking vast sums of money, <coughs> which essentially would need to be borrowed off the other club owners who are all in, you know, very tough financial situations themselves. So there was that lack of um, solution from our side. And, you know, equally, you were just you were trying to help them with the various parties that they were speaking to. But again, that was that was a fairly helpless feeling. And then on top of that, you've got the prospect of the players, and and it was really really clear um, uh, with the whole group that they were entering into this really uncertain as to, to what was going to happen to them and into their lives. And you know, people lose their jobs sadly all the time. But when you think about the players, it's not as if they can go and get another job locally. They have to uproot their family, their kids, everything else. And I think the again the the the, the feeling with the Worcester group was that became quite clear um, uh, throughout the summer that there was that lack of communication with the players from from within the club and also with their staff as well. Um, and so they were completely in the dark for a lot of this. And I remember speaking to the player group um, later on uh, when, it, when it was getting close to the administration piece and, and they just were none the wiser. And there was, you know, real panic and upset and fear and anger where, amongst them. So I think that was a, that was a really bad situation to be in there and then clearly you know wasps wasps followed a, 
a similar fire drill, but you know, at least at that stage, we we, we knew some of you know the eventualities there, so we were able to manage expectations a bit more. But it, again, it's still brutal. There's that wonderful expression, I wish I'd known with foresight what I now know with hindsight. Do you look back with regrets? Should you have stepped in earlier? Were there opportunities? I mean, if you triggered the process sooner for, for either to have been saved? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the helpless feeling is the fact that, that we had no resources to be able to save the club. You know, these are clubs that have essentially yeah. failed businesses that are going into administration. You know, that's the business end of it. You know, it's not our responsibility to run our clubs. You know, some could, could some of the issues that, that have led to this been dealt with four, five, six, seven years ago? Maybe, yes. You know, I think, I think that those are the types of things that we're trying to do now to build better foundations for the sport. Do, do you feel, um, again, that's what I talked about in the early comment about the lack of power? You know, guys running the league, but again, you you know, you can't really step in. You're not really getting a clear vision of what's going on. You know, I, I it would, comes back to the job spec that we what, asked you to outline at the start. Really, is a lot of people were looking you at you to save Worcester, whereas yeah. by the sound of it, that's not actually on your to do list. No, but one of the things, and this may not necessarily save Worcester, and Worcester previously, but one of the things that we've that we've put in place now is a financial monitoring system. So you know, I was flying blind when it came to really understanding the financial situation of both clubs and. So we put in clearer financial monitoring processes and we intend to have that independently chaired and all that. And with that, that system will also have more discipline within it. If it's clear that a club cannot meet its bills going into a season or there's a high risk and you need some sort of assurances that they're able to compete. Because if a club goes bust in the middle of the season, which two clubs did this season... It's the most disruptive thing you could possibly have because you've got you've got people that have budgeted games against them. Forgive me for asking though, why was that not in place already? I mean, you talk about the fact that it's a young uh, professional sport, but we had Richmond and London Scottish in nineteen whatever it was, ninety nine, I think it was, that went past. <coughs> why why was this not in place already? I think that lack of sort of central control and oversight is, has been has been quite a big issue um, within the league previously. It does exist in other systems. It exists in France. They're ten years into a system now where. There's no clubs that have gone bust in front so far, as far as I know. So it's something that we should have had and we're putting in place now. Yeah. Because having, be, having been through it with Wasps myself, you know, not getting paid for eight or nine months, image rights, and, you know, there was a lot of Robin Peter to pay Paul and smoke and mirrors around that. But, you know, that's got to come in quickly because the players should not have any uncertainty. You can't, you know, as it turns out, those Worcester owners were as hooky as, any, as anybody. You know, that's me saying that, not you guys. But it's clear that they were and that the players had no idea. You guys should know what was going on. You should be able to kind of step in and manage that. From And obviously, as if you'd said, that there is the financial crisis facing all the teams that the government hadn't funded. Lots more are going to head that way. People are teetering. You know, what, what can you do now to change it? How quickly can you put something in place? Because if the owners don't want to put it in place... How do you enforce that? So the monitoring piece is being put in place now. So that you know, that that's that's one of the few positives. Out and has, has that been done willingly by the clubs? Yeah, the clubs understand it. They, they equally, you know, there's a there's a there's a feeling that it, in, even if we had the best financial monitoring system coming out of what was you know two major financial crises in COVID, and then you know the economy that we had this summer, it probably wouldn't have saved those two clubs. But nonetheless, you need to have this financial discipline and oversight within the system. And part of the reason is because, you know, we want to attract new and um, new and fresh investors into our clubs. They need it. And so therefore you need to have these types of, of systems and discipline in place for them to feel confident in investing in a sport. Will the new monitoring prevent scenarios like the Saracen salary cap incident? So that's that's a separate piece. And again, you know, we, we have our 
salary cap um, uh, regulations and and following the, the the Saracens episodes, those those were massively strengthened through the, through the miners review. So we've got and they've been tested recently, um, and and so they're very robust. And so we're just we're basically following a, a similar sort of system to what, how we're operating the salary cap now, where there is you know real financial transparency in in, in how we're operating that. I'm hoping it's more stringent than when I was about 22 at WAS, and um, the PRL sent that sent down a person to ask about the salary cap, and they came in and sat me down and went so. Uh, do you get paid um, by any other third parties? Like, no. Have you have a side letter with the club? I was like, no. Do any of your family get paid? I was like, no. And they're like, well, all looks good here. And walked out. And I was like, really? That that that's it, really. I hope it's a bit more robust than that, it's, is it? It's now? pretty forensic. Right, now. So if you if you speak to Quinns and 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 Leicester, especially, you go through. If you win the the the, the Premiership now, you have to go through a, a spe- specific audit as well. You know, it's WhatsApps being checked and various other things. So. God. It's, it's pretty. Um, God, it's pretty intrusive. history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be careful. Moving so, swiftly on. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of circus around the fit and proper persons test, yeah. particularly with Worcester. Um, can you tell us now what's changed around that? And I suppose the question that falls out of that: Where are we with wasps and Worcester going forward? Because what's interesting about uh, I think a lot of the accusations that were thrown your way is that you didn't do anything with Worcester. Um, and now it seems that there's a lot being done around particularly Jim O'Toole's uh, attempt to try and take the club over. So where are we with that fit and proper persons test yeah. and where are we with those two clubs? I think there's a perception that the pendulum's gone too far the other way and, and it wasn't robust enough previously. And now to address that, it's now become yeah. almost impossible to get through, which is not the case. I mean, there have been some slight changes made to it. Uh, there was a fit and proper person test, uh, owner's test in place for uh, Worcester when they first came in. Was that extensive or was it a bit of a, if you've got the cash? Because uh, there aren't many white knights in rugby in the way that yeah. there are in, in Premier League football, etc. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how extensive it was at that stage. That was, what, six years ago? Have you got the money? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nothing um, to see here. <laughs> yeah. But now, in, in the case now, I mean, clearly we're going through, and the process of going through fit and proper tests for both Wasps and Worcester, but there are certain conditions we've got to make sure in place in order to proceed with them both. In Wasps' case, it was around the independence of governance because some of those involved were involved with WASPs previously. So to make sure it's absolutely white than white, what's the balance of independent directors on the board, how are you structured, how do you make sure that's correctly in place? And they've answered all of that. So now we're into the situation with WASPs of moving to that new ground, and hopefully everything will be fine and, and, and things will move on with, with that. In, in Worcester's case, there were a couple of conditions that we wanted to be met around the uh, O'Toole Consortium that we haven't had satisfactory answers on yet still open if they want to provide more information one was around full financial transparency around the prospective owners in terms of how are they going to fund the business plan was it debt funded is it shareholder funding put in it was whatever and there were some answers in that but not conclusive enough for us to feel totally comfortable with it and the other issue was one that was quite a live issue around Worcester at the time which was uh, you have to also sign up to a condition which is any sale of assets i.e land associated with the club has to be by a pre-consent or by approval. Now, that hasn't been agreed either. And that leads you into the same situation. There were concerns around with asset stripping and uh, leaving a club with nothing. So um, we are, we've extended the deadline. Uh, we should have final bids in uh, imminently and the decision will be made before the end of the month. And are you confident a resolution will be found for Worcester? Yeah, we feel confident, yeah. We feel, we feel confident as we can be at this stage that uh, there'll, be a, there'll be a solution there. So Wasps are through that process yeah. and will take their place in the championship yeah. next season. Is that yeah. right? And, you're, and what we're saying is that Worcester should do the same. Yeah. Okay, we shall see. Can I ask you just on a broader perspective, because off the back of obviously everything that happened with Wasps and Worcester, there was a, a lot of digging done around the overall finances of the, of the Gallagher Premiership. The Telegraph 
Gallagher Premiership clubs are at risk of heading for disaster, having collectively amassed 300 million in net debt over the past six years. I think the Mail, our friends there, actually went bigger and said 509 million in debt. Where is the where is the league financially at the moment, and how close to sort of financial Armageddon are we? So I think when the Telegraph announced their figure, which is closer to to te- the technical figure around debt, um, half of that is shareholder debt. So half of that's the money that. Um, the club owners have been putting in. Then you've got the government debt on top of that, which is um, from DCMS and is about 120 odd million pounds, which um, starts kicking in as far as repayments um, over the next few years. So the actual sort of element of commercial debt within that 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 300 odd million um, is relatively small. And so, and also, you know, what the the you need to think about also is the assets that that these clubs have. You know, most of them own their stadiums and various other different bits of businesses. So, I think that's quite a sort of big headline for 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 the clubs. But actually, there's a there's a sort of reality underneath that. That said, you know, they're, they're you know these clubs do need to pay back their debt. Um, and so, you know, th- this is a long-term piece. You know, this, it's going to take four or five years to, to really recover back to, to, to where we were pre-COVID. Um, and, and so then you need to look around growth. And if in, in, in broad terms, if the clubs are turning over in total 220-odd million pounds and they're losing about 40 million pounds a year, you just need 20% of that growth to drop down to the bottom line and, and, um, and, and you can get there. So... Again, you go back to this sort of financial monitoring bit and the discipline. If we can get that right, so if we can manage growth within our cost base, or manage our cost base within the growth, then um, then you can get to a much more sustainable platform. But it's going to take some time. And what about overall investor appetite? So I, again, the, the article went on to say that four owners very keen to offload. I know the Irish owner Mick Crossan, I think, said he'd give it away tomorrow if he could find someone who'd come in and take it on. I mean, wh- where are the current shareholders and, and club owners <coughs> in terms of their levels of appetite? Well, I mean, they're hugely passionate and committed around the Premiership. And, you know, they've been through a hell of a lot and some for a very long period of time. You know, they're, they're, they've been very loyal investors in the Premiership. And I think the COVID period has seriously tested them. And you've got to remember, they've got other businesses, a lot of them. And so they have to sort of manage those things. Um, there is an element of investor fatigue in there. And so part of my remit is to is to create a platform, create a system where new investors feel confident in investing in it. So that's why you talk about governance. That's why you talk about financial control. That's why you talk <coughs> about growth, because you know th- then you can go out and confidently sell to, to new investors. And what I what I found encouraging was, you know, through the Boston Worcester episode, you know, we weren't short of people, even within the UK, who were who were interested in, in investing in rugby clubs. And so, you know, I, I think the market's there for investors in rugby. I think we need to give them confidence <coughs> as to, to where we're heading and, um, and and we'll have a new generation of owners. And where is the dial at the moment? Because someone like Nigel Ray has invested for passion and it, I don't think it was ever necessarily a business decision. What we're seeing now is that, you know, cheap money is harder to come by, that, that people are looking for a business opportunity in sport far more than they were. Where is that dial between investing with your heart and prepared to put the money in through to this is actually something commercially that I'm interested in doing? I think I think the vast majority of owners have have, have b- believed in the growth case, and certainly pre-COVID, they were there was an acceptable level of loss making versus future growth. Now we just had this massive shock over the last you know two and a half years, and so, which is which has set them off kilter a bit. However, the, you know the, if you do speak to them, they they are wanting to make a return on the asset that they've invested passionately in over the last you know <clears throat> sometimes 10, 15, 20 years. Do you think if you change the way? The league was if you were able to do that in terms of you know we we talked about the, the podcast about 
again, a franchise model, um, you know, less teams potentially um, in NFL-style NFL governance, you know, in terms yeah. of obviously, you know, the, you still have owners, but there's a lot more consensus, not just in financial control, but how it's marketed, much more uniform approach, much more attractive um, offering, a much more... Uh, joined up. Joined offering. up, yeah, joined up yeah. offering. You know, yeah. like obviously, again, look, you know, there isn't the same money in New Zealand, but having played there for the Highlanders, you know, you see how everything in New Zealand is geared up to the All Blacks <clears> being the best team. All the franchises are managed. Yes, the, you know, financially it's a different level uh, the, to what we're paying um, over here. But I wondered if, if you have the power or can enforce that. That, I think, is where the longevity of rugby stands. Because at the moment, I don't see it. I don't see it surviving in the current format because I think it's too individualized. I don't think it's as attractive as it should be. And I think that it's, I think if you were to look at how teams market market each other, even running things like their social media, there is such disparity between, you know, commercial ability from each club. You know, surely someone's going to come in and make that a much more universal approach. Yeah, I think I think franchises, whether by design or whether by the way that we behave, we need to look more like a franchise. And so, you know, some of the, the vital signs are that you have stronger central governance, hence why we've set up the Sporting Commission, you know, which is a, which is a positive step towards that. The financial monitoring piece is another bit. But also just a central growth strategy. You know, I think we've grown the game to the point where it is now almost purely off the back of individual clubs marketing to their various different regions. And we know they get, there's, a, there's a massive gap between our potential and where we are now. You know, there's 9 million rugby fans in the UK and England, and principally England fans. And we're people who have purchase intent with us is less than 2 million. We know that that could double. And so therefore, to, to get growth, you need to have a centralised aligned strategy. You need to invest in the centre as well. And so we've spent the last year trying to do that. And 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 for, we try to get the basics right first. And so some of it's about distribution, so about getting the games out there. So um, uh, putting games on, on free-to-air TV was a big point with our with our deal with ITV and the finals now on, on ITV as well. We've got the highlight show that's happening um, weekly. And then we tried to get all games out there as well with our streaming platform. So now every single game is available, whether it's for your core, your hardcore, um, or just the general public who are wanting to try and narrow down into being interested in premiership. Then you get your social sorted. And again, it's an underinvested area. Um, and so with very little investment, we've tripled our video views and you know, grown our following last year by, by, by a significant number. So we, we're trying to get these basics sorted. And then you need to position your product um, better as well. And I think we've done a huge amount of audience research now. We know where our fans are, what they're worth. And so when we try and reposition the league and we're, we're gearing up towards trying to reboot ourselves, um, you know, 18 months time, um, that will be a key part of it so that we're appealing to, to, to a different market. And that's what happened with 100. That's what happened in the Premier League back in the 90s. You know, there is that sort of reset moment where we, we can appeal to it. And there's been very little investment <coughs> no, in yeah. Premiership rugby, hasn't there, over the years? Yeah. So and and we're still coming in, out of in what way, in what ways have been there's been very little mark, direct marketing investment market, okay. into in, into the premiership and what Simon's saying is you know we are still coming out of that covid period we are going through a difficult period with the recession but there hasn't really yet been the full opportunity to do the reset Okay. So I know it sounds like jam tomorrow, but that's what the expectation is, is now you move on from that. But we're, seeing, start investment. Yeah. we're seeing the growth already. And actually, the, you know, the clubs are getting much more sophisticated now. There's, there's some really good stuff coming out of Quinns, Bears. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're doing some really good stuff there. And the players are key to this as well. But it just feels like we're a bit scared, or a bit bit nervous to, to make those make those changes. I mean, do, do you recognise that or do you, or do you? 
Uh, no, um, much less so than than previously. I think you know we, we, you sort of nudged towards you know, a different topic, which is around how the players um, engage. And I think for, for growth, players are absolutely key. You know that they're the people that can sell our game better than anyone else. And I think there has been the tool property, there has been the access issue, there has been uh, lack of willingness, perhaps to, to to get out there and promote. And so that's 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 again shifting. We're trying to provide some of the tools, some of the training, some of the platforms for them to be able to do it. Um, but that needs to that needs to change. People need to talk up the league or feel confident in talking up the league much more. I, mean, I remember when I first started, and it, it didn't mean it literally, but they say you need an Eddie Hearn, you need someone who's there every week talking up the big fight that's happening over the weekend. And I think for us, that's the players. And so if you've got, you know, in extreme, if you've got 700 players talking up what's about to happen this weekend, because it is something that's about to happen this weekend because of the, just how dramatic our league is, then I think you, you move on massively. Um, That's going to require a huge mindset shift, though, to get those in the right order. That, because th th that is not that's not a natural thing for rugby players to do. To be a rugby viewer now is a hell of an ask. You're going across 11, 12 different channels, subscriptions. Is that a is that so, an issue? Is that so? A problem? Yeah, we're looking to simplify that. And if you wind back two years, the Autumn Internationals, the the the, the six games that were going on there four of them would be at the same time on four yeah. different channels, right? So that was a step that we did um, in getting it all on Amazon Prime at different yeah. kickoff times so people can consume it. And guess what? The viewerships go up massively. Um, so I think that's step one. But you're right. There needs to be this alignment of the, of the rugby narrative. And it's and it has been, we've all just been telling it in different in different areas. And it yeah. hasn't been drawn up. Broadcast is definitely one bit that can help do that. And, you know, you talk about the glory days of when everything was on Sky at one point. And, and I think you need to try and sort of a, a realign that piece. But then we need, we need to tell each other's stories much better. And I think, you know, my job back at the RFU is never part of my mandate to, to promote the club game and, you know, probably vice versa with, with, with the Prem. We're, we're, we're aligning those things because that, to your point, is top of the funnel. But you come into it as an England fan and then you need to be exposed to the club game. And so, I don't know, a good example is um, last week or whenever Owen did that behind the pass to um, Lewington on the wing. That's been, I think, England rugby's highest performing post um, in the since, since the Autumn Internationals. So it proves that basically, you know, England fans buy into stuff that's going on in yeah. the club game, and then then that helps move things forward. I, I just want sorry, I, did, well, I just wondered because I talked about the TV stuff. Is that I, I see at the top of 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 English rugby is obviously the, 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 the national team and the characters around that game and promotion of that. If that is strong, and there are individuals that you can identify with, the club game will benefit now. My experience of the RFU, you know, is 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 a mixed one. In regards to promotion, for example, for the team, I think an overhaul of a how the players, how much access are given to the players, what they're encouraged to do and what they're not encouraged to do, needs to change. Every time I, the England team, does a press conference, there's 20 people wearing bad, rose, red rose badges all panicked about what everyone's saying, handing out crib sheets, say with, this, with don't good go reason there. in some instances. Yeah, yeah, fine, good, yes, yeah. obviously, but. You know, there, there, there is that real, you know, corporate concern. You know, again, and I don't know how hard it is to separate the two, but for me, the national team, you're going to have to build up characters. You're going to have to let people be themselves. They're going to make mistakes, but they need to make it an entertainment business, and it can't be controlled in a corporate way. The community game and the other disciplinary bits and growing the game, I understand, have to be controlled in a different way. But I feel as an RFU, it's quite staid and quite stoic in that respect. And if, if people are panicking about letting you have a personality and are saying, you know, when we lose here, don't, don't say that, don't do this, or this is the spin we're putting on it, 
that for me is not going to help grow the game. And I wondered whether that's something you've considered looking at, because I, I don't feel at the moment we're doing the best job to give these young fans heroes. Because Marcus Smith's the hottest property, and he's got 150,000 followers on Instagram or 200, whatever it is. It's pretty, pretty, pretty low. And, and I'll if, jump in on that, because there's still a reason that you are the most followed England rugby player of all time. And it's, well, actually until Tins overtakes Tins you the from age, the Jungle yeah. Expedition. But you're, not, you're, you're still there for now, I think. But, and it's because you say stuff. There yeah. is, a, there is a, a sort of lightning rod to, to, to bounce off. Yeah, that, that can only be a good thing. A lot of it's down to the personalities, the characters involved. Ellis is very outgoing and very yeah. extrovert and he'll say things, sausages and whatever, yeah. you know, and, and create a bit of a <laughs> excitement. But um, uh, some of the others are, are less... But I would say Ellis is only able to say a fraction of what he really wants to say, I, still. He wouldn't be controlled by us okay. significantly on that. I mean, we can all have a conversation. I, I, it, I would, because I, I just think the, the, the attitude for me around the RFU as a body is very concerned, very tight, very conservative, very, you know, controlling... I, don't, I can't recall us ever having an issue with um, uh, Ellis doing social media and, and, and podcasts, and he, he's, he's, he's out there quite a lot. Yeah. I can't think of anything he said where we've shuddered here at Twickenham and thought, oh, that's a terrible thing. Uh, it's good for the game. You know, if we're going to attract younger audiences, then you want that sort of controversy, if you like, and you want that sort of content. I mean, there was an interesting situation recently where it happens in the Premiership already, but it was quite an interesting process to go through for us to get players' names on the back of shirts. Yeah, um, you know that wasn't a simple. We'll just stick the name on the back. Why of the not? Why is because that? Because there is a thing? there is a there is a traditional content which or we traditional do, side which says on shirts in before no, two thousand Wales did it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, just yeah, stick the name on the names. shirt and crack on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Why are we even discussing that as a thing? <laughs> well, you said it. You're, you're, what because what, there was a because uh, it feels like a rugby. There is this area we've always done it, so it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Good old boys and tradition, but surely we've got to blow that up and ignore it and yeah, just yeah. carry on. But that's why you've got names on the back of shirts. For, yeah, but it's taken a while to get. Yeah, it has. Yeah, yeah I think they, the 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 player. We're coming up to the Six Nations now. The the players have the opportunity to become megastars because eight million people are watching on on TV in a few in a few weeks' time. It requires a mindset change also with the players because I think there's a difference between commercial stuff and then the stuff that needs to happen to grow yourself. Yeah. And, grow your, and you mentioned the the, the women's players. They've got this straight up because yeah. there's a commercial imperative. They know that if they get out there, make themselves known, famous, approachable, then not only will it grow the game, but it will grow them um, and, and their profile. I just wondered if, from like a strategy piece, I remember when, you know when I when I was working with <coughs> with England, the O2, the O2 <coughs> stuff was was great because it was completely off piece to the normal traditional nonsense that that you feel like you need to give rugby fans. But I, I just wonder whether. We've done things for such a long period of time, perhaps we need to change. And actually, I, I remember speaking, you know, we talked about the Twickenham experience. You know, in that Argentina game, it, I hadn't sat in a stand for years. It was, oh, the game was 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 awful. The, the, it was raining. Yeah. But it was boring and soulless. And I was like, what is going on? But then obviously for the two games of the light shows, New Zealand, we were standing in touch time. We're like, unbelievable. Announcements, music, uh, names on show, the whole razzmatazz, right? I spoke to the person who, who runs it. Lo and behold, you know, Sinjin Smythe from Box 33 was, uh, was, was you yeah, know, sure. offended, came <laughs> out, you know, turn that music down, you know, with his red trousers, his barber bristling. You know, but the point is, they, I, I think you've got to service some of them, but it's almost irrelevant now. But that's, yeah, that's yeah. a good example because, I mean, my inbox on a Monday after those light yeah. shows is absolutely jammed. Yeah. Is feedbacks. it 70, 30 in the right order? Though? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So the vast, and the younger fans yeah. and, and the majority love it. 
but you'll get you get that minority we talked about before about being very vocal saying this is not rugby you know and it's spoiling the experience of going to a rugby match but we've, we've, yeah, we're we've pushing forward with that, that. But, yeah. but in, in all seriousness where is rugby going to find a global superstar from I think in some ways you have to help create them and I remember for my Adidas days and, and the growth of tennis came through and and they were Nike athletes, but you could actually watch what was done with Agassi and Pete Sampras. Mm. So they wanted to grow tennis as a sport. They wanted to grow it as a commercial entity. And therefore, they needed contrasting characters. So Sampras was the Mr. Clean Cut, all perfect white gear. Agassi was the rebel. And you had this ongoing debate between the two, and you got the rivalry between the two. So to a certain extent, it lies within the personality of the player themselves. But it also rests on us as well to create those identities and create those mini brands if you like within rugby now there's there is a great ambition to do that because it grow, it grows the game yeah. it's one of the reasons why private equities come in because they see the opportunity there to really commercialize this sport do you think the people are in place to do it so or i think yeah, my answer is yes um so so again it comes with investment um centrally you know we, we've got a good plan in place we've we've employed someone whose uh sole responsibility is in his title is growth and 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 so, and he's come from the hundred, and and where players were a key part of the growth strategy there. Um, and then, equally at the club level, there's some really, really good chief execs there who, who run those businesses again with a much more open mindset around things. And then you need to sort of cut through um, some of the maybe the traditions, the the, <coughs> the 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 cultural pieces that exist a lot with the players, but also coaching squads, etc. So access becomes key. Then you need the training. Then you need the platforms. There's all the stuff that we're investing in. And then you start shifting, and and you start getting you know much more noise that comes from the players, and 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 guess what? It's you know net positive. And we'll do it in partnership. So we've just done the same. So we've recruited somebody from Adidas from their digital uh, area who's come in to head this part up, including the marketing, the brand piece, and we've taken a certain amount of money, decent amount of money from the private equity deal, and that's ring fenced only around this data, digital content, player accessibility, player development. I really want to come on to the commercial and marketing element in more detail but just just quickly on the players we're trying to make superstars as you say and yet the salary cap is going down and we're not able to attract i mean you look at the league from years ago carlos spencer george smith pinar seller burke Heyman, twigamala smith leota we haven't got that smattering at the moment for obvious reasons financially as you're talking about where how do you grow stars within a league where you're kind of taking money out of it is that is that a concern and are you concerned about i suppose the the, the lack of real foreign superstars in the league at the moment or have i got that wrong no i mean i think we've the, the salary cap got reduced through the covid period um for obvious reasons um i think if you're looking at what's happening now and some of the headlines um there's this natural migration of players post the rugby world cup cycle that happens i mean you did it yourself mm -hmm. didn't you um and whether that's for for income reasons whether that's for playing reasons and a lot of them will come back into the system like james did um all those years ago the um the, and so I think that's a, there's a natural churn there. Equally, people are coming back. So Zach Merce is coming back into the system now. And we're attracting foreign players as well. So, you know, Finn Russell's coming in, who'll, who will light up the league, I'm sure, next season. Um, but we need to balance um, attracting those super superstars in with, with, as I say, stability. And I think the this, this system, as far as salaries, is, is, is needing to and is stabilising. And then we need to, when we when we increase the salary cap, it needs to be pegged to something, which isn't at the moment. So again, going back to sort of financial responsibility, we should be doing that. But also what we've learned, and again, through some, some research, is that actually the homegrown talent outweighs 
sort of pound for pound a lot of the international talent that comes into our league. So if you look at some of the success that Harlequins had as far as attracting crowds, a lot of it's because of those young academy yeah. guys that come way through, the homegrown hero. Like that genuinely is really valuable and, and has a narrative around the club and people support that. So I think, so so as these these established players exit our league, it leaves room for these folks to become the next, you know, superstars as well. So I think, yes, short term, I don't see an issue. And equally, we just need to, to build back sensibly. And then, you know, you'll get your returns of some of the big names as well. Jack Willis has gone off the back of the Wasps situation. He's now in Toulouse. Luke Cowan-Dickey, Joe Marchant, Sam Simmons, Jack Noll, potentially. I mean, how, how big a concern is... English talent being taken. Well, I think Simon's talked about it there. There seems to be a natural cycle sometimes as well, post-World Cups or certain stages where you are in your career development there. Um, in terms of access to those players now, we're able to still access those uh, because of the situation that existed around the league. Um, yeah, it's concerning if you're having England players uh, migrating. It would be equally concerning if you had younger England players who were choosing to go abroad at an early stage as well. Mm. Um, but I can understand Marchant's why... Marchant's pretty young. 20. Yeah, but I can understand why it's... it's I can understand the dilemma you face with the salary cap because on the one hand, you want to keep the competitiveness going in the league so you don't want to have a situation where you've got two or three clubs running away with it but at the same time, you want to make sure you can attract and retain good talent. So it's that balance. Would you change that law? Because I... Not being able to pick... Yeah. Well, so I, I was lucky because that law hadn't been brought in. I mean, they brought... Yeah, uh, when I was playing, it wasn't there. I, the exceptional. I, yeah, yeah. yeah I, did, I mean, I was nothing exceptional about me. I think they brought in after. So I, I was able to do it freely. So I, I played I at Stamford Say... They did it for Wilkinson. They did it for Wilkinson. <laughs> yeah. They did, Not yeah. Haskell. Different, different kettle of fish. Um, but I got to play at Stamford Say and played every single game for England and in that period. Never missed it. There was one one drama over my owner at Stad took half my salary one month because he said I wasn't allowed <coughs> to go when I was and then just told me to sue him. Sue him. So, which I obviously can't do because you'd lose more money. Do, do, are you a big believer in that rule? Because I, I personally would get rid of it. I don't think it affects the game. I think it, it broadens the horizons and I think players come back with much more experience. I spoke to Jack Willis and I said, I literally rang him out. I said, mate, I am so jealous of you. I said, Toulouse was, was my favourite team of all time. You're getting to play with DuPont. They play unbelievable rugby. You never would have made this move. Are you loving it? And he was like incandescent with how much he, he, he um, was loving it over there. I think that's only a good thing. But There's two sides to that coin. There's that side that you've described, which is that you're getting a broadened experience. You're playing with other players, international players. You're developing yourself as an individual as well by being abroad. So that's the positive side to it. The negative side to it, what effect does that have if you had a mass migration of England players who think, well, it doesn't really matter if I'm in... France or Japan or wherever I am, I can still get picked for England. So by having a law in place, you can retain that English talent within the Premiership. And that gives the Premiership, again, and you want it, we wanted to grow that Premiership to be as competitive as, as possible. So if you denude it of some of those stars, surely that's then counterintuitive. Okay. Commercially, um, and we're sort of talking about transparency, and it's, it's been brilliant, obviously, you know, what you're able to give us. CVC come in, sort of the, you know, the dark venture capitalist uh, money that the game obviously needs. Where are they? What are their plans? W why would they not say this is what we're trying to get to? Is that would that not be quite a useful signpost? How much how much interact <coughs> interaction do you have with them? Uh, so quite quite a bit. They they, they sit on our board um, and they are you know they're very active in in this space generally and and within sport now they've got a lot of investment in sport. Um, they they invested because they saw the growth opportunity within rugby. They saw this very fragmented world that we all live in and they saw that if it could come together and be more aligned um it could grow it could grow and um and so you know that's their main directive there is to try and get better alignment and and to start investing in those underinvested areas that that, that could fuel growth 
um, you know, they didn't come and give me a blueprint saying, right, this is what you need to go and do. You know, that's that's my responsibility along with all, anyone else that's run, running any of their areas that they've invested in. And you try and bring it together. And so, but one of their key encouragements is around trying to get aligned and collaborate. So for example, I now share offices with the Six Nations and, and URC. So I can literally see Ben Morrell from Six Nations and, and Martin and I from URC in an open floor piece. That creates collaboration. And how much time do you bounce off those guys and yeah a lot a couple because there's yeah. a lot of shared things that we're all trying to do we're trying to sell rugby just in our various different forms it's very little competition between us really as far as far commercially and so there's a logic into us collaborating and some things are small some things are big they've obviously put their money in i think prior to covid so i'm not i'm not imagining that they've got the return on investment they were looking for have they got bigger plans as things become more aligned, have they have they put in what they want to put in? What what is their future ambition? So their appetite for rugby hasn't diminished at all. Um, you know they're still very bullish, and, and the benefit is that they take a long term view. So this isn't about sort of trying to make a turn in the next few years. They've got long term interests in, in in mind, which is really helpful because that means you don't make short term bad decisions. So they so they're, <coughs> they're a partner when it comes to, to to things like that, and have been a really positive influence. And and also, it, you know, there's an independence to them because um, you know they can so they can take an impartial view on certain things, and and that's helped. Okay, what about generically? And again, it's a broad question, but I, I, we've heard that the Guinness won't be renewing their Six Nations sponsorship. Heineken are not obviously at Rugby World Cup this year for the first time, I think, since '87. Is there still a very strong appetite? for brands and sponsorship within rugby? Are the backers changing in that regard? What, what does the commercial landscape look like in the game at the moment? I think we're still recovering from, from, from COVID. I mean, we're coming out of a very difficult period. And as we said before, you've got a second whammy on there in, in terms of the recession. So I know from my corporate experience, when you have a, a recession, you've got pressure in terms of your, your top line performance that the easiest thing to look at is your sponsorship budget. That's your contingency where you tend to cut from. So it's a tough market. It's a tight market to get new people coming in. I think all of the things we're talking about in terms of where we're going with rugby, what we're, do, what we're trying to do with rugby, around the growth uh, agenda, around making more stars, uh, um, uh, create more stars around the game, around some of the things we're doing around the global calendar and trying to simplify that whole process because that's extremely complicated at present. Uh, it's, it's, still a, a very, uh, it's, it's still a very attractive uh, investment. If you look at our sponsors, you know, Touchwood, you know, we've got some, some big ones. They're still very, very positive and, and renewing. Are you seeing values going up? down staying the same are you having to fight yeah, harder to get your pounds in i think the media value and everything linked to it is definitely going up and that, and that will that will drive income and i think yeah i think i don't know I worked in the commercial world here previously and and again going back to that fragmented piece i'd be outside the office of brand a and there'd be a queue of my sort of rugby colleagues behind me who having another crack after after yeah. us and so that 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 lack of alignment doesn't really sort of, that confuses the market so there's been there's been much more alignment around those types of things but equally brands have come in and you know, TikTok's a good example with the, with, with the Six Nations and with women's rugby specifically and transformed a lot of the things that they're doing. And so it's bringing in some really good, really interesting brands. And it, and it's also, re, you know, retained some as well. I mean, you know, with England, there's Red Bull and, you know, O2's been doing it for 20 odd years now. And actually, you know, I think uh, uh, you sometimes forget as far as brands that can help grow a sport, some, someone that basically has access to the majority of the population is a mobile provider and is a consumer facing business. Yeah. They've done a massive thing for, for the sport and are doing a massive thing for women's rugby at the moment, um, leading up to the 25 World Cup. 
uh, is that being done? Are you looking at that and trying to, you know, not do what's been done before again? Yeah, I think the, the big area in that would be data right. and digital. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why we're investing as a core part of that that private equity deal we did, investing in data and digital growth. Most sponsors now really want to know your consumers, who they are, what they do, how they're split, what their demographic is, what are their interests, and how do you then market to them according to their objectives as well. And we've touched on that in the, in the past, but it, it really is transforming now in terms of data and digital content. Uh, so that for us, we see that as getting away from your, your normal ordinary sponsorship, which is here's your hospitality table, here's the number well, of guests you can like, bring in. It's like, you know, if I came in here and I said, and I was working for Under Armour and I said, you know, what's the sponsor do? Here's money prepared to pay. And you guys, well, look, we'll give you some billboards and we'll give yeah, you branding. Yeah. It's like that, no, it's, that for the modern thing, nobody cares. So currently now about 51% of our revenue comes from ticketing and hospitality. Right. That's still our biggest chunk. 29%, uh, 19% comes from sponsorship, 29% is broadcast. We think that 19% sponsorship should be double. Yes. Uh, but in order to get to that, it's not your classical, typical no. offering here. Now, you want to keep your 51% of ticketing and hospitality at the same base, but we want to see our sponsorship figure grow exponentially above it's, that. It's gone way beyond that, it's, it, and, and it has been for a while. You need to build an empathy and an, and, and an affinity with a sport. It's not just about advertising mm. dots, spots and dots. And, uh, and it needs to be authentic. So content's key around that and the way that it interacts with players and what actually they're giving fans. And, you know, our title partner, Gallagher, it's a, it's a B2B brand, but they've, they've, they've invested over the last five years in building that authenticity around the rugby network. They do a huge amount for, for rugby clubs and within the rugby communities that are linked to rugby clubs. And, they, and, now, and now they feel part of the family and, and, and they're benefiting from it. So I think it, it, depending on what type of brand it is. And that is where CVC see a huge amount of upside. <coughs> so if you look at the work they do with La Liga, for example, yeah. and they draw comparisons with, well, this is how far ahead they are uh, in terms of La Liga compared to what we're doing in rugby. Right. That's all upside. That's currently not, really, not being activated. What about the streaming giants? Where, where is Netflix drive to survive or an Amazon saying we're going to do an internal... Or, you know, a, a, a story and a series, etc. How, how much of an opportunity is it to get the message out there? Yeah, we're having conversations around that. So we're talking about a possible documentary for the England team leading up to the World Cup um, in, in 23. There's conversations going around, uh, I think it's been stated about Netflix and Six Nations, so that's an ongoing discussion at the moment. But um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, everyone loves Drive to Survive, don't they? Uh, and, and the figures and the, the stories around what that's done for Formula One in the US market, particularly with young females. Uh, it, you know, you'd never have thought that was going to be the, the objective, but it, it's really transformed what they've been trying to do. So I think things like that clearly uh, are applicable to rugby as well. Yeah. well. Wasn't there going to be, was something before that, wasn't there? Because again, sh surely as a governing body, it doesn't really matter, well, within reason what the, the fee is, the benefits far outweigh a short-term financial gain. Or am I, am I wrong? Or is that, you know? It's not well, about the money. It, yeah, it's, it's about, about building awareness. And, yeah. and, and so I think that's where the benefit has been with Drive to Survive. You know, that again wasn't, didn't yield at least initially a lot of money, but it was all about growth. But do we not have what I thought was in one to 2019 World Cup? Was there not something that was going to be done up to there? Uh, there was an Amazon one, wasn't there? Yeah. It was going to be, yeah, I don't know why that didn't happen leading up to, uh, to that. There was the Rising Suns, but that wasn't a docuseries. No. But the, the other key thing linked into this, though, is, is the player involvement. Yeah. Because then you get into discussions around player intellectual property rights and editorial control and content. That's got to be done really carefully. It'd be difficult if we went off and just did a deal and then said, right, here's the deal. It's going to be a, a docu-series and the players hadn't been 100% consulted. So that's the situation we're in at the moment. 
what players players aren't that keen or you or you or well you, we just want to make sure the players have been 100 involved before the deal's completely hmm. done is that not something that you know with the eps agreement or whatever because i was involved in the last negotiation of that you know when you're asked to do things and you know that <coughs> the team is is you know is cashing in your front and center the whole time there should be something there to, to cover it off without being overly mercenary but i just wondered if if if, if, if that if that you're not saying that players are holding it up you're saying that you just got to be considered in that process yeah. Ain't that the truth? Um, I'm conscious of time, and there's some things I'd love to quickly—well, not quickly—but I mean, they're, they're probably shows in their entirety just on their own. The championship. Yeah. Um, so again, I just reading through the Guardian. It was a very interesting article from Rob Kitts. I think it was 12 months ago. Said the RFU accused of giving pr uh, Premiership ring fencing on a plate. That's obviously changed in the last 12 months. Funding was cut by 50% in 2021 to 2022 by three million from 550 per club to 260,000 per club. There's no TV deal. Nottingham chairman Alistair Bowe has accused the RFU, again, I think this was a few months ago, of ignoring the, the needs of tier two rugby. The RFU doesn't want the championship. Yeah. Discuss. <laughs> um, first, we'll maybe deal with the last comment first. Yeah, we, we desperately want a strong second tier. If you're going to be successful, you want to have a strong second tier. And I've spent quite a bit of time over the last year, 18 months, looking at the French model. It's very dangerous to look at the French model because there are a lot of differences there. They don't have the same issue with football that we have in this country in huge swathes of the country. And uh, and there are other issues at play there in terms of the size of their broadcast deal, how much the championship get of that, the Pro D2 get of that over there, and the relationship around stadium costs and so on. But we, we desperately want to have a strong tier two, but it's a really difficult thing to solve. So we increased our funding at the RFU at the end of 2015, coming into 2016, when we had a, a quite a su uh, successful World Cup financially. Yeah. Um, but it didn't deliver any of the returns that you'd hope it would deliver. So there was no narrowing of the performance capability between the championship and the premiership. So in the 17 years before COVID, 14 of those seasons, the team from the premiership that's been relegated has bounced immediately back up, mm. normally by a huge margin. And, uh, and you saw the playoff that took place with, with Saracens and, and, and Ealing recently. Um, so pumping, just pumping money into the championship doesn't do it. It doesn't solve it. You've got to find other ways to make the championship more self-sustaining. And if you look at the difference in the budgets between the premiership and the championship, what's the average budget of a premiership club? 15 million, 16 million? Maybe I'm yeah, yeah, undercalling yeah, it. You know, the average budget for a championship club is 1.2 million. So you've got a vast gap in there. So the amount of money we'd have to provide per club to get you up to a level of competitiveness with the premiership club, we just don't have that kind of money. Mm. And also, we've got 1,900 clubs around the country that we need to support in terms of the community spend as well which comes from the money that's generated uh, from here. Um, so it's a very difficult situation. And despite the fact that we pumped more money in in 2015-16, uh, the attendance has actually declined. So your average attendance in the championship now is 1,200 1, people. So we've got to find a solution working with the premiership. And we're talking about possible Prem 1, Prem 2, and how you structure that, and some quite innovative different cup competition formats, if we could get that in place as well, whether that's focused on younger development players, primarily English players, whatever it might be. But we've got to find a way to make the championship more appealing and more attractive to a broadcaster deal and a central sponsorship deal and improve the overall product. So it's, it's quite a long-winded answer to your yeah. question, but it, it is a, it's a big challenge for us. What, what do you want to do with the Tier 1, Tier 2? I remember the days of <clears throat> Allied Dunbar Premiership 1 and 2. I mean, would you go... Could, could we get to a, a position where you have 20 commercially viable teams across two leagues, or is that at this point too big a stretch? 
I think that, that, that should be an aspiration because I think I, I went around the country this summer and spoke to every single DOR and chief exec around all sorts of rugby issues. And, and uh, you know, when you ask the question, should there be a second tier of rugby in, in, in England? The answer is yes. And that's from development of players um, and uh, mainly from that perspective. Um, what it is, I think there's mixed views on it. I mean, some would believe bringing back the A League, which was basically the sort of the um, the, the second team league within within the Premiership, um, but others see the value in having having a, 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 another group of clubs around the country. And also, you've got to consider these aspirational clubs that want to be in the Premiership going forward. Um, and so th there's, there's mixed views on what it is, but I think everyone agrees there needs to be some st much stronger second tier. Um, the gap's massive at the moment between the Prem and the, and, and, and the Championship. And so I think it's not in the Championship in its current form, but it needs, you, need to take, you need to take second tier rugby with us. So we, we, need to, we need to grow it somehow. We need to get it on a broadcaster, as Bill says. We need to try and get sponsorship for it. We need to let it grow. But we just need to be responsible with how clubs migrate in between the two leagues. Because at the moment, if you relegated a club from the Premiership into the Championship, then, you know, that's, that's pretty stark. You know, it's yeah. sort of, no one wants to see another club go bust. How many five million yeah. is the number that's apparently banded around to if you want to go up and stay buy P shares, buy a stadium, build a squad? It's a big, it it's, a, it's a really big investment. I mean, the other thing is, you know, do, do you in having a, a closed off premiership does does it affect the product? And actually, you know, what, what we've seen over the last couple of years is probably the counter because we've seen some of the best rugby um, in the premiership at the moment, and you know, every game counts, and with ten points between third and last in, in the premiership at the moment so yeah there there is a strong counter argument to that which along the lines that james just said is it, is it but you still, you still want to give a, you still want to give a, a club i mean everyone uses Sorry. the exeter example yeah so you know if you had that situation we had a closed league you'd, you'd never get another exeter so i would always hope that we would have some kind of playoff system oh, really? in place so if you did have somebody come in and we, we want to see a great geographical footprint for the game so we'd like to see more clubs in the north if you did have somebody come in who said, right, I'm going to make a concerted investment, long-term view, in terms of running a club out of Yorkshire to get into the premiership, you'd want to be able to give them that opportunity to get in. Mm -hmm. But it takes three, four years to build your squad, to build your capability to do that. You'll probably see that with, with Wasps and Worcester. Yeah, that's a good when point. When they go down, you know, they're probably not going to bounce back immediately. I don't want to preempt anything. But it might take them two, three years, sort the club out, stabilise it, aspirations to get back in the premiership. Then you've got some real... Jeopardy going on between Prem 1 and Prem 2 if that situation happened. Um, community game. Quick question on that. So again, Rob Kitson in The Guardian said, grassroots rugby is on the edge. And I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, in 2016, there were nearly 260,000 active adult players in the UK. By 2021, we're down to 95,000. Do you know where we are now? Yeah, well, the 95,000 figure he took there was in the middle of COVID. So right. we weren't playing rugby. So what is the number as we right. sit here now? So the number's about 170. Okay. So it's, it has, down it has by, declined. Yeah, okay, we're down by 70,000. But yeah, we, we are, I mean, we're investing significantly now and doing a various number of programs to, to reboot that and reset that. And you can see we actually focused on 161 clubs that were particularly struggling. And we had a number of programs in there around club development, recruit players again, go back to laps players, various different things. And it has had a beneficial effect. Yeah. So I think their com match completion ratio has gone from, I can't went from 68% to 86%. Yeah. I don't so, uh, so when you do things, it can have an effect. The challenge, the challenge we're facing around there is not just unique to, to English rugby. If you went down to New Zealand and you wrote a paper on our game 
and you change the heading and you change it from England to New Zealand, it's exactly the same. Right. And you heard Wales the other day, I think, talking about 12 v 12 yeah. uh, to keep matches on because of lack of players and so on. Um, you're hearing a lot of things around societal pressure. People have changed the way they live their lives. It's the RFU game on rules, that. Pardon? It's the RFU game on rules. Very on. good, which James you did, on brand, which we did, PTSD. We? Yeah, which you did a huge amount to support with a Tyndall-Haskell match, and, and that worked really well. We had 3.2 million hits, I think, on that when it came out. So, Welcome. So it was really, uh, <laughs> really positive. Always giving back. Um, <laughs> and you see, you're seeing things like cinema. I saw the other day, cinema attendance is down by 40% since, uh, since COVID. So there's a period of building building back here. So we've got to make sure the community game is as relevant as it can be to today's society. So do you have to play every Saturday at three o'clock? Can you play on a Friday night? Can you play midweek? Can you vary the times? Are you prepared to actually have uh, a 12v12 situation occasionally? Does it have to to be a 10 month season or whatever it is? Well, it's too long. So if you talk to most players and you get below level three, four, most players only want to play about 15, 16 matches a year because they've got stag dues to go to, they've got golf tournaments to do. It, life's changed. Yeah. It takes 47 players at the moment to sustain a first 15 in a community game. No, in my day, it was nowhere near that big. Mm-hmm. So there is another argument as well, which is a really controversial one. You talked about getting things out there and, and, uh, and how it's viewed. As a number of people are saying, well, actually, we've got uh, too few players and too many clubs. And we'd be better off, actually, merging some of these clubs together. You should have bigger clubs with better facilities which cater more for the needs of the players and therefore you're more likely to complete your matches. And that's all well and good unless you go down the road to a club saying, right, we'd like you to merge with that yeah, club yeah. and you've got 100 years of history. So it's not so easy to do, but we're looking at this stuff all the time. I mean, you think it's hard trying to get them to agree to put music on in a stadium <laughs> race. You think you're trying to get some of them local rugby clubs to merge? I reckon you'd have a civil war. <laughs> I, re- I reckon people would like go to the mattresses and it'd be like the mafia. People <laughs> getting whacked at, you know, small Smallington RFU or something. The, the worry with all of that, though, is that it is sort of trending in, in one direction. Where, where do you think the community game is in five years' time? What, what would you like it to be in five I, years' time? I think there's a huge opportunity to introduce other formats of the game. So uh, more focus on touch or other variations of touch. So where it's, you don't have to join a rugby club to play the full fat, full yeah. contact game. Uh, you're seeing that in America, actually. We talked a lot about the NFL. They now have more flag players than they have traditional American football players. Now, some again, you talk about the traditionalists, you, you say that, and some people say, well, that's an attack on the 15-a-side games, attack on rugby. I'd argue that if you've got more non-contact variants available, you're going to bring more people into the rugby club they're going to get used to handling an oval ball, and some of them will go, actually, I would find moving up now and having a go at the 15. Or you might find people who are playing 15s, getting a bit older now, don't want to do that, still want to be at the club, still want to run around, and they play the non-contact piece. So I think that piece is a huge opportunity for us going forward. And I think that we've just actually introduced the, the biggest change to the community game structures in 30 years. Uh, so the leagues have been re- they've flattened out a lot of the leagues, and the intent for that was to have less travel uh, and uh, and actually less matches, so the size of the, the leagues is reduced. Now, again, I think we've probably got about a 70% positive rate on that and a 30% negative. Not bad. Guessing. It's not bad. So mm-hmm. if, if that is the case, and we'll have a full review at the end of the year, that's a really good development. Okay. We've also seen around the, 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 the women's game, you know, we did a... Um, you know, Lions legacy thing with Vodafone went round to different clubs. And w- what was very interesting is some of these older stoic clubs had sort of had uh, mixed women, uh, you know, with boys because they could uh, to a certain yeah. age. Then obviously some of them had, had cottoned onto walking touch and some of them had cottoned into kind of mi- mixed touch so they could c- keep interacting. But the biggest growth they'd had was the women's game because they'd filled in a solution. Some of these old boys were a bit reluctant. 
and it was the biggest growth factor of the of, of the club, the most yeah. successful part of the the club. So I think adopting those new things and giving everyone an opportunity, a platform. Because I, I, I've said consistently, the thing I think holds rugby back more than all of this stuff is the complication of of it, the nature of it, and people not understanding it. You know, it's very easy to put two jumpers of a goalpost, pick up a football, yeah. and, pass, and you know, and, you know, and the very fact that the most complicated part of it's the offside rule. You know, in rugby you dream of the offside bit being the most complicated part. <laughs> and so I, I wonder not around, around, A, bringing those different formats and make it much more so, easy for people to play, simplifying it, but also how do you educate fans and people? You know, you talk about the fan piece. One of the biggest things I think would be to get fans to interact because how can you have a game that, that has high impact collisions, has, you know, tries, has footwork, has physicality, has brilliant moments, and you get a game of football where it's nil-nil and people are raving about it. How can we have a game? And the thing is that people do not understand what is going on. They well, don't, you know. You've, you've hit on two really important points on there and we haven't talked much about the women's game. But if you go around the country, and this is a bit of a sweeping generalised statement, but if you see a successful community club, it's generally got a really successful women's section. Exactly what I was about to come on to. Because, you get, because you, get, you get people staying at the club for longer, you get better takings over the bar, your volunteer base increases... The overall dynamic is much better and it's more consistent with where society needs to be. So when you've got a successful women's game, it's not just about the Red Roses performing well in a World Cup and the growth of the AP15s. It's the impact that has on the whole community game piece. That's really critical. James has hit on another point here, which we haven't touched on, which is the school. You know, getting rugby in schools. It's tough. You know, people will but say... 2015, it was the all schools programme, yeah, which had an extraordinary schools. impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's but good. So what is the, what is replaced that? Well, we're focusing on consolidating on those 750 at this stage right. before accelerating it. The challenge you face when you try to get into a school system uh, is rugby's a complex game. So if you've never played the game, how do you teach, if you've never done it, how, how do you have a teacher, PE teacher, who's going to teach the scrum or whatever? They just don't know. 15 people is too big for a minibus. I mean, silly little simple things like that. So what other formats of the game can we take into the school? There's a guy called Sir John Coles who's running a study for us at the moment or a study initiative for us at the moment that will be presented back to council in April. And that's looking at the state sector, private sector, female education, male education. But what are the things we can do to really give us ourselves a better fighting chance yeah. of getting more rugby played in schools? I mean, you're talking about the sort of professional side now. And <clears throat> the thing I've learned is... Yes, you do need to demystify the sport. You do need to provide stuff for the super fans. That's the stats and everything else like that. But I've, I've taken my kids a lot to, to to the games now, and they're you know ten, eight, and three, and they love it. And and but the reason they love it, the thing they took, they don't know what's going on a lot of the time in the game. But they they know when they feel jeopardy, right? Because because the crowd do it, and 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 you know there's a noise, and 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 then you build to a dramatic moment. And if you can articulate that jeopardy, that excitement about what's about to happen, what is happening, that's half the battle, I think, because that's what we've got. You know, you're right. There's no nil or draws in rugby. There's something happening all the time. Something means something. Mm. And so if you can just if you can sell it in a very simple form like that, then you know that's gold. Because Alex talked about, I mean, your boy, you know, Harry. You you said that he's sort of was a bit disengaged, and now is is. Yeah. more engaged with it that whether you know things like Nickelodeon have done with the NFL with that kind of gunge gun yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah all that stuff or whether it's just to, to sort of because you know kids are now looking at YouTube for more yeah. things than normal television and I just wonder what it is we're doing and what we can do as a game to make that much more of an entertainment piece yeah I mean, Sky, funnily enough the other night on one of the football matches had an all kids panel Kelly Cates was hosting with two 11-year-olds and two 12-year-olds. It was fascinating to watch. It'd be interesting to see where that, that comes with up. me and Tins, isn't it? <laughs> Very much so. The baby sister um, in, a, in a presenter's chair. Just quickly on the women's game, England at the World Cup, the best-funded team there. 
Was it a success or a failure? Uh, we lost the final. So uh, it depends which word you want to use for that that outcome. I thought they were outstanding throughout the tournament, both on the field and off. They were brilliant ambassadors for the game. Uh, you saw the final spectacular game of rugby, whether male or female game. Um, and I think you, you saw the, the the game plan that that was in there in the in the opening ten minutes in terms of the way we wanted to play it. So it wasn't going to all be about a rolling mall. It was going to be wide, and you know, Abby Dow was back in and playing really well. Uh, and it didn't go our way. You know, that was a that was a, a tough. I don't want to pick on that one moment because it's unfair on the player. Mm. But you know, had we stayed with fifteen men on the field, would we have won that one? You'd, you'd probably think so. Um, so I think in terms of what they did to promote the game globally, not just in England was spectacular and leading up to a 25 World Cup and we're going to be hosting it here, then I'd say it was a success. Okay. Simon Middleton, is he staying, going? Was it, is his, it his contract, decision? Well, his contract is through to uh, Six Nations uh, uh, this year. and uh, Have conversations begun? Yeah, just yeah, general chats about what does he want to do, uh, what do we want to do. So we're at that stage of it now. There's no, no decision made yet. Okay. But obviously going on the basis of the, the Eddie Jones model of the, you know, two losers, two losses in two World Cup finals. <laughs> Press conference, Emma? <laughs> Hopefully not. Okay. Say no more. Um, Alliance Premier 15s obviously has a rejig and a reboot. Um, yeah. Tell us about, I mean, no teams north of Leicester. Is that mm. a, a sort of geographical concern? Yeah, it is. I mean, we'd love to have northern teams and then a full balance. Uh, there's room for 10 teams. So we're entering into a process now to, to, to work with other clubs and say, what is it we can do to actually encourage that additional two teams to be northern, northern clubs? But you've got to be fair to all the other mm. clubs as well who've gone through the full tender process. But we would love to see a, a, a nationwide geographical spread. I think I'm, I'm right in saying it's eight years old now, Alliance Pro 15s. Yeah. What, what have you made of the journey that the league has been on? Are we getting better rugby and, and more competitive matches and, and you know, better developed squads and sort of in line with the, with the growth expectations. Yeah, I think so. I think if you look at the, if you look at the scores and in, 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 in the women's uh, women's game now, they're more competitive. I think the quality of play has improved. I think the Red Roses have helped that in terms of being the shop window for for, for the sport. But I think generally you, you, you've got to say the women's game in, in this in this country. If you said you know mark it out of ten, I'd probably put it at nine at the moment. But uh, we'd want to go further than that. I was going to just, one of the things I did want to ask is just about the commercial interest in the women's game. And funnily enough, we have obviously the good, the scars in the rugby, which is far more commercially valuable and far <laughs> yeah. more interesting to brands out there than, than, than we are. And I wonder whether that's sort of replicated in the women's game now, whether you're seeing a real uptick in brands and businesses wanting to get involved in. Yeah, it'll grow. I mean, Allianz is a great example. I mean, their, their focus is on the women's game. Conversations we have with O2, O2 are very keen on promoting and growing the women's game. So they're demanding a certain amount of their spend is, is focused there. So I think you'll see that grow. Uh, and you're seeing the growth in, in women's sport generally, not just in rugby. How do you um, steer the women's game away from sort of some of the palaver that we've got ourselves in with the men's game? Because almost yeah. when we've, we've talked about it, and you know, our producer Shari is, is, a, is a very keen advocate of the, of the women's game. We talk a lot about kind of the, the internal politics. And obviously there is a large amount of success to be had there. How do you say because you know what what these are lessons we've learned for god's sake go go right don't go left yeah i mean it's, some of it's structurally so i think they're starting with less teams and i think that's a good idea because i think you know if you try and flood it with too many teams at the moment 
you dilute the quality and there isn't enough players in the system and you know there's there's consequences there i think the way it's governed the way it's managed i think has been set up in a sensible way to start off with it's a growth sport and so you need the help of the rfu there to 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 invest and to um and to link it with the international game which is doing really well at the moment the calendar um and yeah getting the calendar right and all those types of things there's lots of i mean it was interesting going into it from the from our club side you know that was one of the mandates was you know here are the lessons learned and um you know really yeah 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 so I think it's it's still very nascent, um, uh, but it's it's hugely important to the clubs that are participating and and also the ones that aren't who want to and want to build programs around it. And life's easy when you start with a blank sheet. Yes. So again, you know, it's moving that moving the women's Six Nations window. Yeah. And now having real clarity between what's the domestic league season. That's the massive. What's difference. the international season? The yeah. fans get it. They know when the two are going to be playing. There's less overlap. The World Cup is going to be a massive catalyst. You sent out token not just for the final but for the opening game. It'd be nice if we could. Yeah, Kiwi the said they did, but they didn't. I mean, they—they're right. cumulative. I think it was thirty-two thousand for the day. Right. But uh, no, I'm being a bit unfair. <laughs> but we've got—we've sold. Uh, we're expecting to get forty thousand here for the England-France game. Wow. In the women's uh, Six Nations. Hell of a start. There is there is some some people though that, that saying you know within the women's game that probably not seeing as much progress as as they would hope, and it's not developing it as as quickly. Do you, do you see flaws? Do you see where things? There are things that could be improved faster. I think the, the club game will uh, develop slower than the international game. The international game is, is taking off. There's no doubt about that. The World Cup was a massive um, milestone, and, and the next one will be the bigger. Will, will be even bigger. Um, so I think that is moving well. I'd say commercially, audience-wise, everything. You talk about forty thousand turning up in a few weeks' time. That's brilliant. That's you know we were having to attract. We do double headers and and hope people hung around afterwards. Or you know that was the that was the plan. Now they can individually sell out stadiums. That's been great. And then the final in in Auckland, seventy percent of those fans had never been to a rugby match before. Really? So it was a completely new fan base. Wow! And you could feel it in the crowd. It's a very different mix. Yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah. that's amazing. I, sorry, please oh, do tell us. Yes. One more question. I was just going to ask about kind of obviously the the ownership situation, right? So at the moment, what I'm seeing, you know, with Worcester, you know, obviously the uh, and the Wasps, team, because they're one umbrella. Obviously, they've been impacted themselves. Do you see a point where um, you could have dual uh, ownership under a brand of 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 say say you had Wasps, you had two sides. So would that work? Would you would you be up for that yeah. um, if they were to able to agree it? So they aren't so impacted because they are completely different trajectories. And I think try to put them under one roof. You have the issue around Worcester and Wasps. Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah, maybe there are separate funders and owners of, of of individual club brands, and and that's the way things are structured. I think you know commercially whether they share sponsors, whether they don't. I think you want people that are fully focused on the women's game. You want people that are fully focused on the men. Some people in between. You know, I don't think you should be too prescriptive about. But it's also part of a bigger solution as well. So whenever we're never going to be playing more rugby going forward. If anything, you're going to be playing less matches rather than more. So, and there are challenges if you go to, to a smaller league in the Premiership. But if, if and you, you quite often say, what, what do you see in 20 years' time? Well, if you're Tony Rowe and you're owning Exeter and Sandy Park, and one weekend you've got your men's team, you, you're at capacity, mm. and the following weekend you've got your women's team, and from a financial economic point of view, you're really, really maximising the value of that asset, that stadium, and that helps you to be sustainable and support less matches for the men in, in a league. So the long-term growth of the women's game, again, another benefit is that side of it. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. 
One more question, and then we'll sort of wrap up, I suppose. You mentioned the global calendar. Um, where are we with the global calendar? I mean, oh God, oh, to be able to redo this on a blank piece of paper. And what is Harmony like with your friends in Sanzar? I saw Mark Alexander firing shots at the NZIRU. Uh, they've been having a bit right. of a spat for a while, haven't they? Yeah. But, um, but no, the relationship between Six Nations and Sanzar is really, really good. And there were a lot of meetings held down in uh, around the Women's World Cup. So we had meetings for about... Must have been over a week just just on this. It seems like it's been going on for eternity. You reckon? I remember coming in 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 in, in 2019, and uh, it was just bef- it was just as COVID was hitting, I think 2020, and we had a flurry of meetings around the global calendar. I thought this is going to be done in six months, and then it got knocked back for various different reasons. So the current situation. You go into is, those reasons. Pardon? Why did it get knocked back? Um, I think there were there were complications around where it sat in the calendar. And the overlap with the club game and the country game, we couldn't quite make it work. Uh, the current situation has got a better chance of success. Um, you probably know what the format is. So you'd have your summer three matches in the summer combined with your four matches in the in the autumn. Yeah. Um, and that would be the top six nations of the north, top six nations of the south, playing against each other. And your final weekend, your seventh weekend, would be 1v1, 2v2, 3v3. Although it might actually be the bottom of the north plays the uh top of the south yeah yeah and so you you get some kind of relegation promotion yeah. thing in there as well so that's that's the format that's being looked at at the moment um we're down to the the discussions around commercials and values uh, and uh, and and do they make sense so, so there's really a structure in place oh the, yeah there's yeah. a yeah yeah yeah. Okay. Does it not frustrate you that during COVID would have been the perfect time to get all this stuff out? <laughs> yeah. And that, that everything in rugby takes a lifetime when surely you could just say, yeah. <laughs> does, that, does that drive you up the wall? Yeah. Are you both yeah. trying to, you're, both <laughs> try, you're both trying to say something without being able to say yeah. something? No, well, I think, I, I, I don't know, reflection on COVID, it brought a lot of people yeah. together yeah. and, it, and it, it made a lot of progress. But not everything was solved yeah. at all, right? And then, and so then, then things kind of go backwards a bit when you get back to reality and you've got your day jobs and everything else. And but I think it has nudged people forward. It has brought people together. Um, that's def- definitely the case in the club environment. I think the club relationship with the RFU as well. So I think there's lots of positives come out of it. And there's different people involved now as well. And and that's generally a positive. I think. Okay. So I'm, I'm I'm bullish. I think it was Trudeau who said the pace of change will never be as slow as it is today. <laughs> Again, I think I've got that right. It's in everything bar rugby, though. So as we sum up, give us, I suppose, your one hope for 2023. When are the positive headlines from off the field going to start filtering into the the papers? Um, I I, I can't give you a timeline on that, but I think, I mean, we all love this game. We all know why we love it. It's a brilliant game. it's, It's a better sport, I believe, than football is, despite the size of football. But there's, there's an awful lot of negativity around it across a, a whole multitude of, of, of topics. And we've got to find a way to not hide our heads in the sand because some of the issues are big issues. It's got to be solved. You touch someone with the championship. But as a game, we've got to come together and, and approach it from a united point of view, mm. accepting what the difficulty, difficulties are, what the challenges are. But we've got to find the right solutions to move it forward. And I actually think we're quite close to that. We've got the PGA this year. Uh, well, it expires at the end of uh, June 24. Is that both of you on either side of the ballroom table? Yeah. So with a lot of other people as well. You won or two, yeah. <laughs> but, um, uh, so we've got that really sort of now in, the, in, the, in a quite a meaty phase of discussions. Uh, and, and that's a huge opportunity for us. Yeah. Have the two of you had a fight about anything yet or not? 
Um, do you like text each other? Constructive discussion. Do you like voice note each other? Probably the last one. The last one's probably about the England kit, actually. Oh, really? What was that name on the back of it? You're one of those traditionalists. There's not much you can do with the England shirt because it's white, isn't it? Right. So it's like, so therefore you're playing with a bit of red on it. And occasional anthracite or purple just for the. So I went through years of just, you have to go through the England head coach to sort of get it signed off, or both coaches. And and Eddie's, you know, so when you go to Eddie to get something approved, you know, the first answer is it's shit. <laughs> and and so therefore you have to go back to it. And, and you've got you've got us and the designers all there just quaking, ready yeah. for it. Depends his, what mood he's in as well. But yeah. exactly. So anyway, so so it, it, Bill had just come on board. Now Bill, you know, as you've learned, has just worked at Aladas and, you know, is a bit of a fa- fashion empresario. So therefore, <laughs> as you can see. <laughs> we got, you know, we got the, through Eddie. Eddie was like, oh, mate, I love it. You know, the magenta's popping and, you know, the like, great cuts and all this type of stuff. He's getting really technical. Then we have to put it through Bill and, and Bill just basically goes like this. <laughs> anyway, sort of eventually get it through and he's going, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. Was it best-selling show? Yeah, best-selling show. <laughs> but, but you know, that, that is again from a player's perspective. And you know, the, I remember the the the, um, the seven shirt, which was that bright yellow yeah. and orange one, was the best-selling one they ever had. Sold out. You can't get them anymore. I'm only, I'm only kidding, by the way. So, so, but in your current roles across the boardroom table, there is peace, harmony, constructive. You text Progress. each other on Christmas Day and stuff like "Love you, but happy Christmas." Like, always <laughs> send each other like hampers and stuff like yeah. that. Hoppers. It's um. <laughs> I think it's not just us. It's it's you know, yeah. the, the 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 Bill and the RFU have got really good relationships at all levels with the clubs. You know, there's there's an open dialogue there, so it's not just. You know, we're not just the messengers here to to try and reconcile. And it's not going to be easy because if it was easy, it would have been solved ages ago. Yeah. So the, there's some tricky topics we've got to navigate our way through. But the people around the table have got one thing in common. I touched on this before. They all love the game, yeah. and they're all a bit fed up with where we are currently and how do we actually get to a better situation there. So we're starting off the conversations with the point of view of right, how do we find a way through this tangled mess yeah. to get there? With, so just with the point about just about positivity, because you, you know we try to find that again. Because I sometimes feel that if we could lose at Twickenham or, or, or you're booing, you kind of you can't pretend it didn't happen. But equally, I don't think you need to give it as much light or a service as you do. You kind of got to go, well, actually, I thought this was quite good. That wasn't quite good. Own your mistakes, but equally be overtly positive. Instead of trying to control the narrative and almost firefight, to spin no, it in a different way. I, think that's, I mean, we, we mentioned offline before, yeah. before we started, you said something. You know, maybe we need to be a bit more bold in terms of how we interact and the things we say and be a bit more or a bit less risk averse in yeah. terms of how, what the reaction's like. And maybe we need to be a bit more bold in terms of when we say things and what we say uh, and come out and, 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 you know, take the risk of what the outcome of that is. So, so I think yeah. we have been too sort of secretive and, and defensive and, and reactive to stuff. And, you know, I'm trying to change that. And I think there's just an awful lot of stuff that needs to be explained and you need to be honest yeah. around it. And, and it's going to piss off 30% of people. And, you know, I'm, I'm afraid we're in that situation where there's no perfect solution. But just it's that it is us talking things up more that's that yeah. promoter thing mm-hmm. it's that eddie hearn thing it's you know we've got two thousand people that are employed by the league if you include the players and people that work in the clubs and prl if we all wake up every day and start talking it up and being a bit more ted lasso or whatever yeah. the, the yeah. right person is they, they, then then you know we'll get a hell of a lot further because there's so much good to be talked about and actually you talk about the media the media i think I feel a real responsibility around this next phase you know i think they, they i think a lot of them would be shocked around what's happened with was and Worcester quite rightly and i think they you know they equally feel a responsibility around putting the game on a, on a, on a good standing going yeah. forward and, and i think they feel positive as well so 
Thank you very much indeed. This has been really enjoyable and, and very, very beneficial, I think. Hopefully people will have learned a thing or two. And actually, I look behind us and you've got obviously Twickenham coming together and for the first time in 23, a bit of sunshine as well. So perhaps there's a... <laughs> I saw Bill's a, for the year. Bill was in a pair of Speedos. <laughs> yeah, one of earlier. The glow has come on. Bill, Simon, thank you very much indeed. Hugely beneficial. I think it just goes without saying what a complicated world it is to be operating in. But good luck uh, with all this, that is to come over the next few weeks, months and potentially years as well. Jamba, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that is it for this week's Good, Bad and Rugby. We're actually going to debrief Hask and I on the lock-in on all that we've been discussing over the last hour and 45. So if you fancy that, do subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And as always, let us know your thoughts. I'm sure one or two will be very quick to do that. Uh, merch on the website for the super fans, as always. Uh, go and have a look at goodbadrugby.com if that's your thing. And this week, we have got a clash of the good, the scaz, and the rugby titans taking place on Saturday as Moe's top-of-the-table Gloucester take on Scaz's Loughborough, who've got their first win of the season at the weekend. Can they make it two on the bounce? Elmer's heading up to watch and record a pod with them both post-game. So if you're in the area, get down to the Alpas Arena for a one o'clock kickoff, and that is on Saturday. Well done. Great fun. Uh, we're going to debrief, as we said, on the lock-in, so come and find us there if you fancy it. Otherwise, The Good, The Bad and The Rugby is produced by Shira Kilgallen, and The Good, The Bad and The Rugby is a folding pocket production. Look after yourselves, and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Good, Yay, The Bad, uh, and The Rugby. Oof. With Alex Payne, James Haskell, and Mike Tyndall. Thanks for listening. <laughs>